VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, September the 12th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's the fellow you'll be speaking with when you pick up the phone to give us a call and get in the queue. So, if you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So, we open up with a little sports and athletics. As the preparations are now underway for the hosting of the Canada Summer Games in 2025, of course, they run from August 8th to the 24th in 2025 here in St. John's and surrounding area. So the coaches are being put in place and the selection of the athletes is already taking place. A lot of prep goes into, you know, being prepared for those games, certainly on the athletic front. You know, doing the work at Memorial University for the new track and field facility and the new turf soccer field and all the rest of it. Now they're going to open up applications as of today for folks who want to be part of the mission staff. Quite an honor to be involved like that. So now you're going to be able to apply for to be the chef de mission, the assistant chef to mission and mission staff so it requires a pretty significant background in sport to be part of the mission staff and of course we've got a lot of repeat offenders i'll call them terrific people who have put their name in the hat every canada games for the last number of decades it's superior stuff so if you're interested in being part of the mission staff you got to get at it because the deadline for applications to be the chef uh, part of the chef team is september the 18th mission staff applications are open till the 16th of october of this year so lots of excitement already brewing for the games i think i'm going to take weeks holidays volunteer i don't think i have the time to be part of the mission staff not that i'd be selected but i think i'm going to volunteer all right sticking with action recreation and maybe adventure tourism over the weekend, we were told that there has been some $7 million put forward to help develop the Great Coastal Trail on the Great Northern Peninsula. It's pretty significant in size, 850 kilometers. So biking and hiking and adventure tourists, when compared to the East Coast Trail, which is 336 kilometers, this is a massive expansion and an incredible trail network. Now, it's going to weave its way through some 50 communities along the way. And no question, when we look at some of the folks who have traveled to this province, specifically to hike on the, uh, the Eastern Trail, we hear the stories all the time coming from all over the world to be part of taking on the vistas and the challenge and the rugged terrain that is the trail network here on the East Coast. So that's great news, and I think that's going to be a real great addition. And talk about a continuous trail linking up two other reasons why people would travel to the province to visit the UNESCO World Heritage Sites. So a continuous trail from uh, Lansom Meadows National Park all the way down to Gross Moor National Park, it sounds terrific. Now, if you're going to be so inclined and want to travel to this province, because we don't know why people travel. Everyone has their own different strokes for different folks. But let's say you come to hike that trail and or the East Coast Trail. Generally speaking, with that expansive trail network, it brings a lot of luggage with it, right? You know, your hiking gear, maybe some camping gear. So very likely many of the people coming, whether it be from the rest of Canada or anywhere else in the world, they may be inclined to want to have to drive. Okay. So what was not necessarily included in this conversation was making sure people have easy access and affordable access to the province. So it's one thing for the government and the St. John's International Airport Authority to be dealing with other airlines to try to bring some direct routes here. And I do think that's important. Some of the people that listen to the show think it's, you know, a fool's errand. But I do think there's a lot of importance associated with that. But it's Marine Atlantic if we're talking about people getting here with all the necessary gear to take on 
the expansive trail network that is being proposed. It's going to take some 10 years, but, you know, we've got to start preparing for whether or not it's going to be the tourist attraction that is proposed to be. So when you deal with the airlines, that's a tricky piece of business, as opposed to actually dealing with our own government regarding Marine Atlantic. I've put this forward many times, and there's lots of concerns. So this year there was a proposed f- uh, fuel surcharge. I think it was 4%. They've deferred that. We still don't understand the implications of the clean fuel regulations and the 33 million liters of fuel Marine Atlantic burns annually. And then it's the cost recovery model, because that's the real deal breaker. Marine Atlantic has to recover 65% of its operational costs based on fares. So yes, deal with the airlines all you like and maybe cross our fingers something comes to pass, but dealing with our own government to reopen that file. It was once a huge talking point for provincial politicians, certainly those who were elected to be represented in the House of Commons, but it's kind of gone by the wayside a little bit. So if we get that right, Maybe, just maybe, we'll see more and more people inclined to get here via Marine Atlantic. And then, of course, I guess that reopens some conversation. And I don't know where this stands anymore with the federal government. And again, many people think that this is the epitome of a fool's errand when we talk about a fixed link, a tunnel between Labrador and the island. It has a long history. This has been bandied about for a very, very long time. But I wonder how some of the updated numbers are being received by the federal government. And in particular, and I've used the Goody Hutchings name before, as the Minister of Rural Economic Development, this is right in her crosshairs. You would think it is. So now with these updated numbers, and we know there's been a partnership between the province and the Canada Infrastructure Bank, which has been largely ineffective, some $500,000 to have a continued look at it. All right, but the new numbers are in stark contrast to the numbers that we once had from Hatch Engineering. So now they think that the numbers have expanded all the way to some $4.8 billion to build that particular link. So when Hatch took it on in 2018 to update a study from 2004, they predicted that the cost would be about $1.675 billion for the 18-kilometer rail tunnel. Even inflation alone would have made that price closer to $2.8 billion. Now when a new company called, called Arup has taken it on, they've said that it's going to take at least $4.8 billion to build, 14 years to complete, uh, more than two years more than the previous estimate of 12 years. And then they looked at you know, whether or not people would be enticed to take that route versus Marine Atlantic. Marine Atlantic is never going away, even if there was ever a fixed link. And whether or not you think that's a good idea, I'll leave it up to you, and you can share your opinion here on the show. But the new numbers are quite staggering. They say that it take about $20 million in operating costs, but they only estimate, this is Arab, they only estimate about 9 to $10 million in estimated revenues, consequently a $10 million shortfall. So yes, we can go out to the business marketplace and see which companies would be interested, maybe to establish some sort of business model uh, akin to the Confederation Bridge, for instance, linking PEI to the mainland. But when you look at these numbers in contrast to Hatch, you know, even when we don't even include in that number, it's billions of dollars to complete Route 138 in the province of Quebec. So it's been passed down from former Minister McKenna to uh, current Minister Dominic LeBlanc. They say that it's a nation-building exercise and all of those political catchphrases that are associated with it. But with these new numbers, is that even still in the hands of the Infrastructure Bank? Is it still part of the mandate letters for federal ministers responsible? Just thought I'd throw that out there in case you're interested in it. And we spoke with Jordan Brown, the NDP member for Lab West yesterday, regarding the changes to the Medical Transportation Assistance Program. With an additional $1 million into the program, there's now the availability of an online voucher to the tune of $1,000. And then for the next flight, there's a 75% cost coverage for flights exceeding 1000 bucks once again. And Jordan Brown says, you know, gives it half marks. We're almost there. 
Just think about it. You know, access to healthcare is part and parcel with the Canadian offering of universal healthcare. And if you're in Labrador, of course, and especially if you have frequent flights to the island or to St. John's, it comes with a whopping big price tag. So if a million dollars is all it took to expand it to the way it's been done, they say there's more changes potentially coming, we're just about there. You know, and I know people will begrudge spending more and more money in Labrador, even though they've contributed greatly to the provincial economy. If it was just $1 million inside the envelope of $4 billion in healthcare spending, seems like there's maybe, just maybe, a way to make it even better and easier and more accessible for folks in Labrador. Anyway, good morning to the folks in Labrador. If you uh, want to join us on the program, you know what to do. All right. So I heard uh, Brian Medora in the VOCM News talking about Hurricane Lee. I have no earthly idea where Hurricane Lee is going to track. They're talking about maybe hitting Maine, maybe the southern coast of Nova Scotia sometime later in the week. We'll have to see because it's unpredictable at this moment in time. But, you know, even in the news story that I read this morning, just imagine on the southwest coast, any of these potential storms, these named storms that whip up in the Atlantic. Of course, it goes from batting down the hatches to extremely uneasy feeling. Added to it, I brought this up before, but I'll do it again this morning, is about when you can't get private insurance to cover all of the potential impacts on your home, whether it be flooding or wildfires or these types of storms. And we saw that as the reality for folks on the southwest coast when the storm surge was not covered as it damaged over 100 homes. And, of course, a 72-year-old woman swept out to sea. So the money is coming from the federal government inside the Federal Disaster Financial Assistance Program. It's been in place since 1970. They've spent about $8 billion to help cover losses. About 73% of, of that money has been spent in the last 10 years. But there's an interesting commentary coming from a retired public servant named Ralph Pentland. He is looking at it and the need to potentially rejig that assistance program, and it's important, and some of the thresholds that need to be met. Ottawa bears no burden if the damage amounts to less than $3.61 per capita in the affected province. The federal government share can rise as high as 90% for events causing damage amounting to more than $18 per capita. But here's the trick. There is some concerns that certain areas who are high, that are high risk may find individuals uh, having a hard time to secure Private held, hold, private, pardon me, privately held insurance. And so this would be the backstop. People may view it as free insurance. And Mr. Pentland goes on to say that when we have these well-known high-risk areas with no deterrent to build elsewhere, and whether it be the zoning issues to allow people to build in the high-risk areas, then if there's no deterrent because there's so-called free insurance coverage coming from the federal government, maybe, just maybe, we should rethink how the program is structured and access to it. Now, I know the association, just look at the population of the province along the coast. Look at the population right across North America along the coast. It's been the draw for a variety of reasons, economically speaking, and lots of other reasons why people want to live by the water. But when the deterrent is not in place, how do people and individuals assess whether or not they want to rebuild where they know there's especially high risk for flooding? And we've seen various parts of the country where flooding has been the massive concern. And of course, coming through this wildfire season, maybe a bigger conversation at the federal level about how those monies are administered. You want to take it on? Let's go. Also, when we talk about how federal monies, and this is not tax-paid money, this is our contributions into our employment insurance fund. Okay. 
pretty devastating potential in the future for seasonal workers. And we heard from the FFAW president, Greg Purdy, yesterday about the fact that when there is good news, like a reduced unemployment rate, it also triggers some potential bad news. And because of it, they've changed the qualifying criteria for employment insurance to 490 hours for regular claimants. And when we talk about the fishery, for harvesters, it's $18,912. What the problem will be now is that as it currently stands, there will be people who do not qualify for EI that will have some seven weeks without a nickel coming in the door. So between February of 24 to the beginning of the crab season, people will be out, left out. I don't know if there will be an annual ex- exemption for these affected workers, but that is a long time during the depths of winter to go without any money coming in the door. So Mr. Pretty goes on to say that, you know, broaching this conversation with Minister O'Regan and Minister LeBlanc, if there's no changes, they're taken to the streets. And, you know, a massive demonstration will be coming. For people who don't have any money coming in for seven weeks, now you can say, you know, you have to save. We know what's coming. If you don't have money coming, then you should just prepare for it. You know, the rainy day to stoke some money away. But we're also talking about people that don't really have a whole lot of money coming in the door or in the bank anyway. I'm not just trying to label anyone working a seasonal job as always looking for government to help. But the reality is, based on how much money they make annually, putting money away for a seven-week stretch in the depth of winter seems kind of unrealistic. So you want to take it on as one of those potentially impacted seasonal workers? Please do. I mean, the EI system is antiquated, to use Mr. Pretty's word, and there is some work that needs to be done there for sure. All right, stick with some federally related matters for a moment. And of course, you know the deal. We can talk about whatever's on your mind. There has been an appointment and terms of reference for a public inquiry into foreign interference, specifically into elections. So a Quebec Justice, Marie-José Hogg, has been appointed. All the major parties are in favor of the appointment and the terms of reference. But what we don't talk about, and if you hear from a former uh, head of the CSIS uh, organization, Canadian Security and Intelligence Service, a person named Ward Elcock, says that we don't really have a core responsibility or focus at the federal level on national security. And not just about foreign interference into elections, but more specifically, what means even for operation of the economy. The Business Council of Canada has written about this extensively, and I don't think he's wrong. So if you look at some of the work that's been done, there's been some creation of different agencies to be part of the national uh, security infrastructure. But he goes on to say that that one national committee of parliamentarians, it's basically ad hoc, you know, piecemeal. And so, yes, we can have an inquiry into foreign interference. But what does that mean for uh, protection of the economy? I mean, we see the disinformation and misinformation campaigns. We see clearly the foreign interference that's taking place in the country. So when Mr. Uh, Pardon me, Mr. Elcock, who actually sat at the helm of CSIS for quite a long time, says in his experience and watching what's happening today, the focus on security is not where it needs to be. He says it's simply not a core responsibility. I think that's a massive conversation. And the consequential decision-making that maybe has been, you know, based on when circumstances pop up as to a real hyper-focus on national security issues, and then people, you know, put out things like uh, defense spending. We have to include cyber inside of defense spending. And yes, people talk about the 2% of GDP for our requirements and commitments to NATO. We stand at about 1.5%. But beefing up national security absolutely does have a keen reliance on cyber security, don't you think? I do. Anyway, let's keep going. 
I've had a bunch of emails, and I don't know exactly what triggered it. Maybe it's the story about the 18 homicides in front of the courts now, and the pressure on the Crown prosecutors, and pressures on legal aid. And then you hear stories of the first-degree murder charge laid against a Deer Lake man. Since that, a couple of dozen emails for starters pointing to the fact that small-town Canada is not immune to the quote-unquote big city ills, woes, and crime. And I guess that arrest in Deer Lake points to it. And it's an allegation at this moment in time. This fellow will have his day in court. He did a lot of apologizing yesterday as he made his first appearance, so we'll see where it goes. The essence of the emails was about concerns regarding the future of the RCMP and their presence here in the community. Because what started as a story of uh, a number of vacancies in the RCMP and their ranks, now we know, of course, that the RNC is going to be expanding their footprint. Some additional monies, 10 additional officers, but people on that that part in that part of the province that are now going to see yes an expansion to the force of the RNC but the worries about police presence nothing calms down you know speeders and drunk drivers and or petty criminals throughout all the way to real dangerous criminals when the police aren't there and you don't see them then maybe just maybe that makes it a little bit more dangerous for residents who are law-abiding peaceful people who just want to live their lives so getting lots of concerns about the expansion of the rnc footprint you want to take it on we can do it how are we doing on the telephone this morning david all right david's busy that's a good thing all right very quickly I had a call late in the program yesterday and there was a mention of john f kennedy jr and it was about the war in Ukraine and the need to find some off-ramp. People not talking necessarily about a peaceful resolution, but more about contributions of humanitarian aid, military aid, and the like. So the mention of Kennedy, just curiously when I was looking through some of the websites that I have the tabs open all the time, on that front. It was in, on this date in 1953 that Jacqueline Lee Bouvier married Senator John F. Kennedy. And then it was on this date, as we talk about the Artemis Project and going back to the moon, on this date, 1962, the famous speech that President John F. Kennedy made at Rice University declaring that the U.S. will get a man on the moon and safely bring him back by the end of the decade. Quote, we choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they're easy, but because they are hard. Just thought that that was curious. It has a link to yesterday's mention of the late President Kennedy. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline.vocm.com. When we come back, we're talking to you. Let's start with a story that I read about some of the issues. I can't see all those fingers, Dave. What are you talking about? Uh, okay, we're going to start with the mayor of Conception Harbor. In, this, in the news, talking about so many of the residents that are in arrears and the inability to access municipal operating grants because they haven't submitted their financial statements. Maybe there's some issues with some ongoing court-related matters. So we'll start the program this morning with the mayor of Conception Harbor. That's Craig Williams, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number three. Say good morning to the mayor of Conception Harbor. That's Craig Williams. Good morning, Mayor Williams. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Welcome to the program. Thank you. So we all know that, you know, small town Newfoundland and Labrador, and I would suggest that even here in the capital city, it's hard to cover all the necessary services that the municipalities offer. But when you have the numbers of people in tax arrears and the inability to access municipal grants, it comes with a cost. Paint us a picture of what's going on and the amount of money owed to, to, to your town. <clears throat> well, Patty, for the, you know, the, the one, you know, one thing, the town of Conception Harbor is, you know, first and foremost, we're on poll tax. We do not have property taxes yet. So being on prop, uh, poll tax limits our ability to collect any taxes in arrears where, you know, we don't have the ability to, 
to place a lien on properties and, and things like that, or have, you know, property sales or tax sales, like, you know, uh, towns that have, uh, uh, you know, property tax. We, we do not have that option. You, you can have a million dollar house on one side of Conception Harbor, a $2 million house on the other side of Conception Harbor and another large piece of property. You're still paying that 425. And in addition to uh, the poll tax versus property tax, you know, you talk about putting a lien on those who owe taxes, but you don't even know who they are. So that's one of the implications of a poll tax. So I guess that's paid directly to the province and then it comes back to you in the form of a grant or how does that work? No, the, the poll tax gets paid directly to, to the town. Okay. Us, 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 us as councillors do not know who pays taxes under the uh, Privacy Act. You know, so, you know, it could, it could be my next door neighbor. You know, I'll be honest with you, it could be my wife. I don't know. You know, but um, so, you know, we, we don't really have that ability. We, we use, we have been using collection agencies in the past, but, you know, normal collection agencies, you know, agency they hold your file for 90 days if it's not collected on they'll return it back back to the town because because people know that there's really nothing you know that can be done and they they take advantage of of that system if they were to sell a piece of you know their their piece of property yes then we can manage to collect some taxes there or, or any taxes owed back to five or six years just because we have to provide them a tax certificate for the you know for them to sell their property and we'll get it back directly then from from the lawyers but on a poll tax system we're very limited on uh, you know how we collect taxes what's the estimate on how much money the town is owed uh, you know what on the you know at the last audited uh, financial system our financial statements that we got were what was about two hundred and Two hundred twenty twenty thousand, and that's and that is you know going back five years, or six years, whatever the maximum we're allowed to to, to go back. And so, what does that mean for the reduction of services? Uh, well, you know what, uh, we we don't uh, you know have a lot lot of service. We don't we don't have sewer. Uh, you know, it's it's snow clearing, uh, garbage collection, uh, those who are on the with the water system. Uh, you know, and street lighting, and you know, we we give grants to to the recreation uh, group and uh, you know to the marina group to to help with the the infrastructure there. So, what's happening with garbage collection, for instance? Uh, you know what, uh, with garbage collection, you know, at at every every council meeting, the the, the, the you know the the payables were being tabled. We were. Um, you know, passing them to be paid. Uh, you know, the, the next, the next, uh, I guess, next meeting. Uh, you know, the, the, the another group of payables, but the, the bank accounts were uh, being, uh, you know, tabled as well. And you know what? It was councils. Um, you know, council was of, of, of the thinking, and you know what? And that's that's all. All, all council, not not you know, not not just just myself but uh, you know we're thinking that the amount presented at the next council meeting was net of those payments and it you know it turned out it wasn't um, you know what wasn't you know it, uh, what wasn't being paid and the 
contractor suspended service. Uh, you know, we tried to work with him. Uh, you know, we asked, uh, you know, we tried to work with municipal affairs. Municipal affairs tried to work with him, and uh, they, you know, he wouldn't work with municipal affairs either until we were paid in full. Uh, since August 22nd or 23rd, I've been trying to work with with municipal affairs, trying to get our situation corrected. Uh, back in back in twenty, let's see, so, you know, twenty 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 one, we had a, our, uh, you know, we and and uh, yeah, twenty yeah twenty twenty one, we had a problem with our uh, our our town clerk, and uh, you know that was that's that's before the court uh, the courts, but what was happening was we were. Um, our accounting, our accounting firm, our auditing firm was waiting for the bank rec from her to be completed. Um, you know, for us to, to to meet our our, our deadlines of getting that submitted for us to be able to get our um, our uh, MOG and our gas tax. Um, and you know, because of you know what what was happening, you know, behind the scenes, that the council didn't you know realize. You know, she was you know. Um, you know, in, in in small towns, and you know, a lot of you know, we're, we're seniors based uh, for the most part. People will come in and, and, and pay cash, you know, pay their taxes in cash, and and you know that that, that was an easy, uh, you know, ripe right for the pickings, uh, you know, f- you know, f- for that. So we, um, you know, our our audit didn't get completed on time, but due to COVID, uh, municipal affairs was. Still releasing the MOGs and things like that. So uh, back of, of June of last year, um, we uh, the other firm that we were originally using merged with, into a larger firm, and the, the costs you know skyrocketed for the town. Uh, our town manager at the time talked to the you know we're involved in the regionalization plan. Uh, with the other four towns, so we met. Um, we changed uh, accounting firms to one that all three towns were using. So all four towns will be using the same. Thinking that if she was, uh, you know, in in the area, she could probably come in and, and do um, do you know do what whatever uh, you know do do you know a, a, a swoop of of everyone. And we tried to. Uh, you know, try to uh, you know try to take advantage for that. We we handed off our files to her in June, July of uh, of last year for to complete our 2020 uh, audit, which you know was delayed or you know because of um, the uh, uh, you know the the, the previous uh, town manager clerk there. So we. Um, you know, so we, we, we gave her the file in June or July. Uh, our town manager then, you know, tried to reach out to her, tried to reach out to her, tried to reach out to her. In January of 20 of this year, she told us, you know what, I got the file on, you know, the file's on my desk for my review. Uh, you know, we continue to follow up with her, continue to follow up with her, visit, you know, visit her office, file's on my desk. We finally received that file on uh, May 5th of, of, of this year. She then told us, you know what, we'll, I'll be in around the, you know, the 15th, 16th of May to start the, the other, uh, you know, the, the the next year, you know, August would be 2021. And normally, you know, an audit can be flipped in, you know, six, eight weeks. And we, you know, thought that would, would happen then as well. Uh, 
you know, she showed up sometime in late August after our uh, you know, our current, current town clerk went on on, on, on stress leave uh, or, or sick leave, I'm not exactly sure. So do, for clarification, yeah. there hasn't been a submitted audited financial statement since 2020, or has that now been already put in, in the hands of the department, or is it 21 and 22 that are outstanding based on what is potentially ongoing 20, court challenges? 20, 20, 21 and 22 are, are out, outstanding, outstanding, just trying to, to deal with the auditor to get those, those completed. And what's the implication with the charges pending against the former town clerk and manager? Does that uh, does that have any potential interruption with the financial statements? Uh, it, you know what it'll 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 cause the financial state. You know they they had to because of the the fraud that's all. You know the, the the fraud is already there. It'll you know they'll have to do more due diligence and you know going through the you know the the, the banking the banking statements the the uh, town receipts the you know the receipts that were given to the. Um, uh, you know, to, to the, the receipt book that we, you know, provide the residents when they when they pay it, pay taxes. So, you know, and you know, confirm, you know, you know, with, with the bank rec, you know, confirm that, you know, that that money was actually deposited. That there's no no money there. It, it will cause somewhat of a delay, you know, just because it'll take longer now to do this audit instead of you know just a regular audit. You know, uh, you know, you know, check them. You know, you know, just. Check, 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 and now they have to, you know, spend a lot more time on that. So, is that as fundamentally the request of the minister responsible to release the MOG based on, you know, it's unavoidable to deal with things in the courts? I believe the formal town manager is due back in the court next week to enter a plea. She, so, I think she's due, due back tomorrow. Okay, due back tomorrow. So, is that as simple as, you know, looking for an exemption to be, so that municipal operating, operating grants can be released? I mean, if the statements are being compiled and done by an accredited accounting firm, is that the request of the minister? Yeah, well, that's that, that's what we we've requested to you know I I provided uh, them with uh, you know copies of my emails to you know to the accounting firm saying can we get an update can we get an update can we get an update and uh, so you know what I've you know we've done uh, you know I've I've done the best that I you know that I can I'm you know I'm, on my end trying to you know track this you know you know uh, to get the, at least get the audit done as soon you know as soon as we can uh or as soon as they they can to get us you know back in you know good standing with the, with the mogs and, and the gas tax you know the, the mogs were owed probably you know, somewhere between 70 and eighty thousand a year we're owed you know about twenty thousand each year for uh for, for gas tax I appreciate the time this morning. Hopefully things work out, most importantly for the residents who rely on the street lighting and the garbage collection uh, that, you know, is part of the fundamental offerings and services for any municipality. Oh, uh, I appreciate the time. Anything else very quickly, Mayor Williams? Sorry? Anything else very very quickly before I have to go? You know what, just like you guys say, we've, we've been, been trying. You know what, there's, there's, you know, I've, I've been, you know, getting about three hours sleep a night on, on this. You know, my... You know, I've doubled up on my, my blood pressure pill. I, I, I don't I don't take this you know that this matter matter lightly. You know, it's as frustrating as as uh, you know health health for me trying to deal with municipal affairs to get this you know taken taken care of. I you know myself and my family do you know do a fair amount of, of volunteering in, in the town between the, the you know between the the, the town and then the power and stuff like that. And it's just you know what 
with your names dragged through the mud like this. It isn't. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I don't think there's anyone in, in, on the planet right now who would like to be me. So you're, you're talking about the pressures. Are you talking about operating grants? And you say names dragged through the mud. Is your name being dragged through the mud? Oh, absolutely. You know, because you know what? You know, it's like anything else. The captain of the ship is going to, you know, you know, they expect the captain to go down with the ship, right? So you know, if they're they're saying, you know. You know the reason why it's not done is because of me or or whatever else or if i'm the problem with you know with 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 the town then you know what yeah that's you know it's it's, part, it's all part of small small town politics patty and you know, so that is on and off since 20 you know 2012 uh and back full time since you know i went from 20 i'm uh, sorry 20 2011 to 2013 and then came back in 2015 until now and so, you know what I'm, I'm 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 used to you know being the you know called the whatever else well as the mayor of course that's you know buck stops on your desk all that yeah. kind of stuff are there any other issues regarding you or your family that are causing your name to be uh, smeared or dragged through the mud no i appreciate the time this morning mayor williams thanks for this all right take care take care bye bye uh, mayor craig williams on conception harbor before we get to the break let's go to line two good morning john you're on the air uh, good morning and thank you for taking my call my pleasure uh I just want to take a moment to discuss some uh, traffic flow issues on the Peacekeepers Way there in CBS. And it's basically, this happens almost every morning on the uh, morning commute toward Mount Pearl, St. John's area. And I just want to highlight that there's a few problem areas, uh, I guess, on this uh, particular highway related to the on-ramps. And one particular problem area here is the uh, traffic flow in the Long Pond area. And this is a place uh, for your listeners where Peacekeepers Way is only a two-lane highway, basically, at that particular junction. And what's happening there on the on-ramp, the on-ramp itself is fairly short. So people who are trying to enter Peacekeepers Way, they get squeezed off you know, pretty quickly there in terms of uh, runway room to enter the highway. But uh, these cars really aren't slowing down. They're trying to enter the highway regardless of traffic flow. And the result is that the, the highway traffic itself is breaking and slowing to the point where the highway traffic actually comes to a full stop standstill. So the highway cars who, you know, are coming into that area at 90 kilometers an hour now, you have to be prepared to break and come to full stop at Long Pond. And uh, to further, I guess, add to this problem, some of the drivers who are, you know, entering this uh, traffic jam, they decide to exit the main highway in Long Pond, uh, take the off-ramp, only to try and jump back on the on-ramp to, you know, get around maybe 20 or 30 cars, which, again, further exasperates this problem. So I'm just calling here this morning. This is li- literally, it's its an almost an everyday thing in the morning commute. I'm calling to suggest that the uh, police and Department of Highways certainly have a closer look at this particular exit during the morning commute. Uh, there needs to be some improvements made here in terms of traffic flow overall uh, before there's a serious accident. And, of course, just to improve the efficiency of that road as it moves through. And I think uh, I just wanted to call also to say that uh, the drivers need to understand here that the Highway traffic uh, has the right-of-way, and merging traffic should only come onto the highway when it's safe to do so. And so the highway traffic should never really come to a full stop here, uh, and nor should on-ramp people feel that they should just try and plow through and and hope for the best in terms of coming on. 
And I'm sure these ramps were probably built at a time when the, the amount of traffic coming out of CBS was far less than what it is today. That's the biggest part of the problem, isn't it? It's the, vo- the volume. And, you know, yeah. with some of these merged lanes and on-ramps and off-ramps, we're kind of all in it together. What gets me is when you have a, say, I'm trying to get down to the Outer Ring Road from the Guzhu extension there, and you've got yeah. people in the left lane passing other cars in the so-called slower right lane right at the merge point. So nobody's got yeah. anywhere to go. So there's lots of those acknowledgments we all need to be aware of when we're trying to get on and off these big through fares. And you're 100% right. That particular area was never built to accommodate the volume of traffic that it sees every single day. And, Patty, you know, I mean, I'm mentioning that particular exit. Foxtrap is also a similar thing. And, I mean, I, I, I think they could, you know, do a few things here to uh, mitigate some problems, trim down some of the brush there even so the people coming on the highway can see the highway a bit more clearly to see the volume of traffic. The same with the highway traffic and see people coming on. Uh, you know, you'd, like we're a pretty courteous uh, group as far as letting people in and that kind of uh, stuff. But in this case, you're on a two-lane highway, so you can't turn into the oncoming lane, uh, you can leave some room and have the merging traffic come out, but ultimately, if there is no room, the merging traffic has to slow down. And by the way, just as an... you know, I'm mentioning that highway itself. Of course, that highway ends, you might say, coming in towards Mount Pearl area. You then have to uh, navigate the idea that you're going to enter now onto a bridge where there's traffic coming onto the bridge uh, on an on-ramp, and, and the highway traffic going over the, tr- the bridge is t- trying to turn right to get onto the Trans-Canada Highway, which is another complete nightmare of a situation, and I'm really surprised there hasn't been more serious accidents there. Anyway, I just thought I'd call in and say uh, a, a suggestion to have some people actually, you know, park there to uh, examine that traffic flow during the morning commute, like to have some, to, to look at some data to see if there is anything they can do. Appreciate the time, John. Thanks for this. All right. Thanks. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, that's, that's a bottleneck right there. All right, let's take a break. When we go back, Mike's a taxi driver. Talking about the fact when he gets ripped off, nothing happens. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Mike. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How you doing? That's kind this morning. How about you? Oh, well, I've had better mornings, no doubt. What's happening? Somebody, well, you know, these, uh, some of these individuals here in the city, when we, you know, we pick them up, I mean, I'm a taxi driver, I'm not going to say what company, but, you know, and we drive them to and from their destination or wherever they want to go, and then they just jump out of the car, you know, like, no repercussions, you know, so we, you know, we call the police, uh, you know, this person just jumped out of my taxi, and here's where they are, they're in this house or the, this address, so the police show up and go, yeah, sorry, but there's nothing we can do, you know, and it's day, it's on a, it's a daily, daily basis. I, I know for a fact that three drivers from the company I'm working for this morning have been ripped off since uh, since seven o'clock this morning, and it's only quarter ten. <laughs> you know, we take them to these destinations and and they call the police, and they they just don't care. There's nothing they can do about it. How is there nothing they can do about it? Because it's pretty much straight up theft, isn't it? Yeah, but 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 because these people are living in shelters or or you know or whatever you know because of their situation because most of them are uh, are addicts, uh, the police go listen. By the time it goes to court, you're not going to get your money anyway. So it's just really a waste of the court's time. So they don't even bother to fill out any paperwork. They won't even charge anybody. 
this particular instance that happened to me about an hour ago was uh, a young lady. I drove her across town uh, to a store uh, around the Avalon Mall. Um, she went into the store, uh, robbed the product off the shelves in there, ran out of the store, jumped in my taxi. Uh, I didn't know she had stolen anything, so when I drove her back to where I picked her up, and uh, and then when she didn't pay me, I reached over the seat to grab her arm when she went to jump out of the car, and she ran in the building. I called the police, and he said because I grabbed her by the arm that that's assault, and he said he said the judge just come throw it out anyway. So I called the store that I brought her to, and um, and they said yes, she did steal the product and ran out and jumped in your cab. I communicated that information to the police officer and he said yeah well there's nothing I can do about that either so I mean like what's the point <laughs> if you're just going to keep letting these people away with it fair enough so what's the solution here because if the police aren't going to act on it and they're probably not wrong that you're never going to get the money anyway so no, how- no, no exactly right yeah so how are you going to evaluate whether or not you take a fare well, you know, we we just don't know. I mean, this you know, most of the time you can you get a kind of a feeling for a passenger when they get in. You know, whether it's you know it could be a little sketchy or whatever. But this lady was was very well dressed, very well presented, very polite. You know, right? I mean, who knew? You know, and you, I mean, you can't be asking for money up front with every single passenger that gets in your car because it's just not good customer service. I was about to ask: Is that something you are able to do? Because if I'm we, consistently we, getting ripped off, I, I'm going to seriously consider uh, asking well, again, for some money up front. Again, yes, I mean we can, you know, and and in certain instances we do, but I mean you you just can't tell with every single person, and and if you do ask somebody for money up front, a lot of people get offended. You know, why do, why do you want my money up front? Why do you think I'm going to rip you off? What kind of person do you think I am? They get very upset. I so can understand it's, that. It's a, vicious, it's a vicious little circle. You know, it really is. But, I mean, you know, that's, uh, but I, I just couldn't believe that, you know, that I, I and then I, I uh, communicated to the officer this morning that she had stolen from this particular store that I had driven her to, and he said, yeah, well, there's nothing I can do about that either. So, I mean, you know, RNC, really not caring, really not coming, <laughs> you know. So she got a cab she never intended to pay for to get a ride to a store where she shoplifted. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Mm, nice. Yeah. So, uh, what, what's your thoughts, though, Mike, when, for instance, if one of the ride shares, Uber notably, uh, comes to town? Because you get paid up front. Your credit card well, is right well, there exactly, on file. Yes. But, I mean, most, most, of these, uh, most of these addicts will say here in the city, I mean, they don't have a credit card anyway, so they're not going to be paying up front. They're not going to be doing it. They're not going to be using that service. If They're Uber, going to use us. If Uber ever came, would you be consider being an Uber driver versus a traditional uh, taxi driver? Absolutely not. Okay. Why not? No. no. Well, you know, I'm just, I'm loyal. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Just got a loyalty for the company I work for. Yeah. I would imagine hopping fares is pretty common. Oh, absolutely. Like I said, this happened to three or four of our drivers just in the last couple of hours. You know, happens, you know, I'd say 10 or a dozen times a day, every day. And we call the police, and again, and there's nobody ever gets charged. Over the last several years, I've called the RNC for this particular issue probably 10 times, filled out statements, but yet I've never been to court. I've never, nothing, nothing's ever happened. Yeah, I wonder, like, if it was my cab company, I think I'd be instituting a no-fly list, right? Like, yeah. if we know that this address has been, uh, you know, skipping the fares and that kind of stuff, maybe, just maybe, we don't respond to them anymore. Yeah, and, and we absolutely do that. But when you get calls for uh, particular areas, like, say, the shelter at 18 Springdale or the gathering place, 
You know, I mean, you, you never know who you're picking up there. Right? Sure. And, you know, right? And it wouldn't just be someone at the gathering place or someone with an addiction who's be willing or wanting to skip a fare. I mean... Right, yeah. But now, now, the majority of the times that we get ripped off are, are from those addresses, you know. But, I mean, we can't not send cabs there anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah, I get it. Mike, right. sorry it happened to you, and I'm sorry it's as common as you uh, portray it to be. Uh, anything else before we say goodbye? No, that's it, my friend. You have a wonderful day. You too, man. All the best. All right. All right, bye-bye. All right, let's try to get uh, back on track with the breaks. When we come back, Harvey's in the queue. He wants to talk about the grocery rebate. Okay, don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Harvey. You're on the air. Good morning, Teddy. How are you this morning, old buddy? Doing okay this morning. How you doing? Oh, not too bad. Well, it could be better. It could be worse, I guess, my friend. What's on your mind? I'm, I'm counting about that rebate now, a grocery rebate, like in the thick, uh, coming up to the schools on July. Now, is that one-time a payment? It's a one-time thing, yeah. They're calling it a grocery rebate because we're all feeling the pressure at the grocery store. It's basically just another GST credit. But, yes, that was one-timer. Okay, that's it. No more. Nope. Right on. That's all I want to talk about, buddy. You have a good day. Now you enjoy it. Keep on the good. Keep up the good work, old buddy. I appreciate that, Harvey. Stay in touch. You take it easy, my friend. You too. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Yeah, the grocery rebate, it did come out on the 5th of January of July. The weirdest part about that, though, is the grocery rebate, or your GST credit, was based on your 2021 tax return. The next GST credit payment for July is based on your 2022 return. So why they did that the way they did it was really quite bizarre. And yes, that one-time bump was a, uh, it was exactly that, the one-timer. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, Patty. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Grand this morning. How about yourself? I'm good, thank you. Good. Just wanted to talk about the trans issues in the media today. Sure. I'm calling as the parent of a trans individual, and I just want to let people know about our family experience. Go right ahead. Okay, I think a big problem with the trans issues today is miscommunication and a lack of knowledge. Um, when our son was our son was older, when he told us, he was actually 25, and when he told us, I cried because I didn't know anything about tra- being trans. Um, but once he told us, that began my quest for knowledge in the medical community. And when we reached out to family, extended family, and told them the support we well logan got was amazing and i think that's the important part is the support and communication my mom even went reached out to a counselor and got books on the issue just so she could understand and i want people to realize that it just doesn't change who the individual is in fact logan is much happier and much more content and I still search out and question about trans individuals because I'm hungry for information on the topic. Such as? Like what kind of information are you uh, thirsty for? Uh, well I guess I, I, I still have questions about um, pronouns and I still ask Logan for information on should I be saying this or should I be saying that? And how do I know what pronouns to use? And just like um, just like understanding the whole process 
and the uh, hoops that trans individuals actually have to go through just just so they we can they can be who they want to be and that's I guess that's what people want in the end they want to feel comfortable in who they are and I I just think um, if we just listen to the media and the media side of it um, and we don't search out the knowledge ourselves I think I think that's where the big breakdown in communication is. It's um, especially now talking about um, children and trans rights and stuff like that. Is it's kind of like if you they're hard conversations to have, and if you shut down the conversation, your child's going to continue that conversation without you. I think it's better to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. Well, of course, I couldn't agree more. The the biggest problem for me is that what has now happened is everybody who is trans has been lumped into one demonic pile where they're all of a sudden all dangerous. And now all of a sudden anyone that is trans or uh, supports or understands or tries to understand the community is all of a sudden a groomer and they're coming for your children. It's gone from a fundamental question and conversation to accusations of danger and vile behavior and everyone's trying to come after your kids. That's, That's led to an almost impossible conversation to navigate because if there has been a crime ever committed against a child by anyone of any walk of life, then that's one person and one crime. To generalize it to an entire segment of society is trying to hurt your kids just makes the conversation tricky, you know, if not impossible. I try to entertain it because it's my job. But when that has, that's how it's portrayed, certainly on social media and some of these echo chambers, it's really quite vile and it's absolutely dangerous, but it's become all the rage. It's in vogue. So when you hear those, co- those comments, when Logan hears those comments, how do you react well i you know it, it kind of like just angers me in some of the comments that i hear and i just feel about um the i'll say like the older trans youth who are in that population where they're talking to their friends and stuff like this and the biggest the biggest point i think uh when a person is trans and they come out to the parents is is mom and dad going to accept me or are they going to kick me out and i didn't actually realize that that was a thing because i'm thinking my god it doesn't change like it didn't change logan at all and so like how could you all of a sudden decide that oh well you know like i don't i don't want to have that child around anymore it's still your child and um, I, I, I sat back and I kind of thought, wow, like, um, we were, were there. We embraced the, the, the whole process. Now, Logan had surgery in 2018 when, well, the government paid for nothing, absolutely nothing. We had to go to, we went to Nova Scotia, so there's myself, my husband, and Logan. We all went to Nova Scotia, where he had surgery. We paid for the procedure, the anesthetic, the hospital stay. We paid for all that out of ourselves, because at that time, MCV was covering nothing. 
and and it's just it was just kind of like I say to people it's like night and day to see the change in an individual because now they can be who they are comfortable with and I think that's what parents have to realize with with this talk about trans individuals I mean I think it all boils back to support support your youngster because that's going to make all the difference and I got to say that I mean um, I'll admit that the relationship prior to his being 25 was difficult but I can also look back and understand where they were at that point of their unhappiness and right now our family has a beautiful relationship we have a wonderful line of communication Logan knows he can reach out anytime day or night to his dad or I and we're there for him and I think that's what people that's what I want people to take away is that be there for your in, for your child. Makes all the sense in the world to me, Patty. I'm glad you called the program today. It's again, some conversations are uncomfortable in certain corners, but those are the ones that are probably the most important. And you know, I I will just relay this very short story. There's a person that sends me emails all the time and, and I reply sometimes they're really quite savage and vicious and and it's sort of hateful but anyway I, I do reply sometimes and it was about this issue the most recent rash of emails and the person basically went on to say that if their child ever came to them with this that they would disown them why because of they'd be embarrassed themselves so it was so remarkable to me how the conversation wasn't about the child and the child's happiness or contentment and future and prospects it was about how it would make this person look in the eyes of his or her friends sort of a strange way to look at it you know it's, it wasn't about the kid it was about the person it was about the parent I'm not going to say it was a man or woman but basically said I'd be so embarrassed that I'd disown them is it about you or is it about the child I was a little thrown off by that but I, I imagine that's fairly common uh, thought that some people may have when talking about and thinking about this issue uh, I'll give you the last word Patty before I have to go to the news well in in the trans community there's such a high rate of suicide uh, probably because of lack of support and miscommunication and uh, i i think people really are parents are to step back and just focus on what you want for your child rather than what you're going to look like if you have friends in or anybody in the community like i think you'd be accepted and none embarrassment and people may look at you and say gee i'd like to be i'm proud of knowing that individual who is supporting their trans child patty i appreciate the time this morning i wish you and your family well thank you you're welcome take care bye-bye now when we see things that we know are 100 percent inappropriate age inappropriate or otherwise or are in essence crimes and lewd behavior and all those types of things we all can recognize that that's a problem but the problem extends beyond that is that now all of a sudden everyone in the community is painted with the exact same brush which is just patently not only ridiculous but it's 
entirely unfair. So anyway, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about a new service being offered to first responders called LifeWise, and then Lloyd's in the queue to talk about the caribou. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to Jocelyn Dunn. She's a peer support supervisor con- uh, for contacted contracted services with LifeWise. Whoops. Good morning, Jocelyn. You're on the air. Hi. How are you? Doing okay. How you doing? That's a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> it is a mouthful, but I should be able to handle that. But anyway, off we go. Tell us about LifeWise. So LifeWise is a lived experience um, organization. Uh, We do uh, peer support, policy consultation, public education. Um, We operate a um, mental health and addictions warm line, but our most recent um, service that came out of a um, Newfoundland Labrador paramedic mental health working group um, where people in that group were requesting peer support peer support specific to first responders. So we launched um, our first responders warm line um, last Tuesday, the 5th, and it is staffed by five amazing um, staff members with a variety of lived experience um, in uh, as paramedics, uh, in the military, retired police officers, um, a, a former funeral director um so there's there's a lot of experience um through those those workers um that people will be able to relate to when they call in you know as much training as the various first responders go through there's not really much can prepare you for what you're what you're inevitably going to see responding to a suicide responding to a vehicle collision on the highway where there's people maimed or killed until you see you don't know really how your body is going to respond to it so how are the the former first responders or the five staff members how are they trained like what are some of the tips or techniques or the conversation how does it go can you walk us through you know not about a specific example but a generic because when you see it you can't unsee it and to bring it home with you day after day must be excruciating i can only imagine what they see Yes. So, um, and on that line, having people that have been there and that have done that, um, they know the impacts that that's had, um, and they have worked really hard on uh, their own recoveries and and what that looks like. Um, when someone calls in um, and is sharing, maybe they just got off a really difficult call or they saw something that was really traumatic, they're able to call in and speak to someone who um, knows what that feels like and knows the impacts that can have. And they're able to discuss that and, and debrief that or just talk about how that's impacting um, someone's mental health um, in a safe, supportive, confidential way. Um, like a lot of first responders, I worked as a first responder for a short period, um, don't want to bring it home to their families. They don't want to um, necessarily be talking about it a whole, a whole lot at work. It's kind of, you know, pick up and go to the next call. So having a place where they can reach out to to debrief some of that um, and have those conversations um, in a safe place um, will help them look after themselves so that they can look after everyone else that they go to on a daily basis. 
do we have any understanding of how many people thought that they were equipped mentally and physically and emotionally to become a first responder and then when they see what they see unable to handle it and leave for that reason alone i don't have numbers but i was one of them <laughs> and i know i know other people in in my class as well that um really really wanted to work in in a medical field in a working field um and kind of once once I got into the field, it was um, there were aspects that I absolutely loved, but I wasn't able to maintain my wellness. And at that point, there weren't a whole lot of supports for people in first response. Um, so I'm thankful that this service is starting now and we can start opening up some of that, not just for your, um, you know, your first responders that you think of on a daily day basis of paramedics and firefighters and uh, police, but also, you know, the social workers that are dealing with um, all the opiate and uh, opiate crisis and overdoses and um, the veterinary staffs and the, anyone that's kind of doing that, that first response and it's going through those difficult times that need someone to talk to that can relate. Are you comfortable in elaborating on your own story this morning, Jocelyn, and the kind of supports that were available to you and, you know, the circumstances that saw you leave the profession? Um, so for myself, um, I was struggling with my mental health uh, during that time and had some um, some issues with regards to like receiving the right diagnosis and stuff. Um, I tried my best to kind of push through and um, kind of continuing the work and um, the rotations of hours wasn't good for my wellness and there wasn't a whole lot of flexibility around workplace accommodations and um, there really wasn't anywhere to turn to talk about how difficult a job it is and you know you don't want to go home to your mom or your your sister or your kids or your husband and say like you know I just you know, found someone deceased today, or I saw this horrific car accident. The last thing you want to do is to to share that and and traumatize others. So often people keep it internally, um, and and some people can do that for longer periods of time than others. But it it impacts everyone. Um, so being able to talk about that in a safe space is so important. And some people can can compartmentalize these issues, but at some point, even historical trauma eventually comes home to roost. So while we try to protect our family and our friends from, you know, having to live or relive what we experienced through the run of a day, or pardon me, what first responders experienced through the run of the day, it's the double-edged sword. It's the double whammy. You're doing the right thing on behalf of the people you love, but you're probably hurting yourself or harming yourself even further because eventually, you know, there's very, very, very few people are able to be so mentally I don't know if the right words are tough or strong or resilient I don't really know what that word is but for the 99% of us you know like even sitting in this chair the stories I hear I have to try to figure out how to talk about it too because it's a lot and it's nowhere near it's a fraction of what a first responder would actually see with their own two eyes and have to touch with their own two hands so I entirely understand why this is an important offering and bravo to everyone who's behind it the five staffers who are operating the lines and the the thoughts behind we have to establish this because we know the stories but people don't have a place to tell them yes for sure Jocelyn good to have you on the show really appreciate the time keep up the good work so I, I just want to uh, let 
the hour, tell you the hours as well as oh, the yes. number. Oh, yes, and the number, of course. So, yeah. yeah, so it is open from um, 12 a.m. to midnight, um, and it's open every day of the year. Um, so people can uh, get support whenever they need it. Uh, the number is 709-237-4180. Um, and if you feel like you need to reach out to talk, um, can be something small or something big, um, we're here to listen. I appreciate this, Jocelyn. Stay in touch. We will. Take care. Thanks. All right, bye-bye. Jocelyn Dunn is a peer support supervisor for contracted services with LifeWise. Okay, let's take a break. Lloyd, you're up next to talk about the caribou. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Lloyd. You're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. How are you? Very well, thanks. How about you? That's good, sir. Good. Oh, I'm fine. Uh, yeah, Patty, I was uh, actually driving the Port of Bass there uh, the other day, and I just happened to catch uh, a gentleman caller. He was talking about the uh, coil and uh, the caribou and uh, I heard him say something about he had a a big pitcher but he did not say what size the pitcher was and was I was just kind of curious of how big it was because the biggest that we got that or I had myself is uh, 10 by 12 and then there's another pitcher uh, of the caribou with all the crew members surrounding the uh, ship. So I didn't know if that's one of the pictures he had. So you you have a picture 10 by 12, you mean like a piece of paper size, or are you talking about 10 by 12 feet? No, no, <laughs> inches. Okay, so I have no earthly idea how big it was, I suppose. I could have asked, uh, but I didn't get a whole lot in on that chat. Uh, so you're talking about the car or the caribou with that? Comment. Yes. Uh, I just didn't know, like, there was some stuff there. I, I only come in on part of the conversation. I don't really, and, uh, like, it seemed like there was some information there that you were a little bit skeptical. So I said I thought I'd be able to give you a call this morning and uh, give you some, I'm not a, uh, well up on all of it, but I can perhaps answer some questions or give some information on the caribou itself. So what were you referring to that was skeptical? Like, what does that mean? Well, uh, like, I, I, I don't mean no... Uh, this, anyway, what I was saying is, like you are saying about uh, uh, Captain Taverner, he was the captain, and I, well, he was my grandfather, actually. Oh, okay. Then, uh, well, I lost my grandfather and my two uh, uncles, Uncle Stan and Uncle Harold. So, like, uh, I think one of the things was... Uh, Uncle Stan was a first officer, and Uncle Harold was a third officer. Because at that time, I don't think you were quite sure what his uh, what his job was. Or I could only remember that they were officers. I didn't know if it was first or third. Yes. And I could only remember one of their names. But, of course, that was just coming off the top of my head as we were having a conversation. I always remembered the fact that Benjamin Tabner was the commander, and two of his sons also perished that day. That just stuck with me. Yes, yes, it did, yeah. But uh, the other thing I was uh, going to talk to you about, the uh, he was also the captain on the coil for a few years. Oh. And he was actually one of the, his, uh, at, on the coil, while he was on the coil, he was one of the persons that found the uh, airplane, the Old Glory. I don't know if you know, familiar with that. I know the story, basically, yeah. yeah. Well, he was one, his ship at, uh, the, on the coil, he was captain on the coil, and they were the ones that found that, the plane at that time, back in the day. 
Fascinating. Yeah. And anyway, apparently, uh, this, he pretty well made a straight, uh, from what I've read onto it, uh, they've put out a SOS, I guess, for the goal to look for the, 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 the glory, old glory. And uh, him and his uh, officers, I guess, they took their bearings and they pretty well, almost, from what I can understand, pretty well went straight to where she went down. And apparently they loaded the uh, tail. They found the tail section of the plane or something and brought it into St. John's. But I don't think there was any bodies recovered. Do you, do, can you remember what year that was? Because I know the Kyle was grounded, basically chased into Riverhead Harbor Grace in '67 to find his final resting place. So do you know what year that recovery took place? Uh, I'm thinking it was t- like maybe in 1925 or 27. In oh, that, okay. At that time. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking now because I, I, I only glimpsed through some stuff there the other night uh, in some of the papers I got here and that's what's flashing back to me right now and uh, and then like I say he took over the uh, the command of the caribou after he left the coil and uh, he ran the ferry service like you say well the, the caribou from North Sydney to Port of Bass till, uh, till the tragedy I guess you could say well, that's a tragedy. It sunk in October 1942. There was yes. like 46 crew, almost 200 military and civilian passengers. I can't remember the uh, the precise number who were saved, you know, picked up by the uh, the crew and the Grand Mayor, which actually headed back to Sydney then because better hospitals and stuff versus in Port of Basque. So, yes, tragedy, I think, is v- very much apt. Hello? Lloyd, are you still there? Do we have uh, any idea what's going on with that connection, Dave? Why don't I put him on hold? Now you check in with him, Dave, and see if he wants to finish any thoughts on that. But amazing. The grandson of the commander of the caribou with us on line number one. And if Lloyd, if, if, I don't know what happened. I didn't touch anything, so we just got disconnected somehow. Uh, let's go to line four. Keith, you're on the air. Hey, how's it going, Patty? Doing okay. How you doing? Uh, not too bad. Just uh, touching base uh, about the complete lack of education on COVID uh, that I've been talking about for months. And uh, how we have the most severe infection rate in the country right now in Newfoundland and Labrador. And the general public really has no idea about that. Well, we actually had uh, Janice Fitzgerald, of course, the chief medical officer on VOCM some while ago, not long ago, talking about the stats, talking about the prevalence, talking about the severity. So what do you think is missing so far as public information? It's just the, uh, you know, the information as to what COVID can do to the body once infected, right? Uh, People are still under the false impression that it's just a cold. Uh, The acute symptoms are the only thing you need to worry about. There's no after effects. Uh, things like that and that's a dangerous way of uh of going about things when you have a virus that's so prevalent um like i said especially here in newfoundland so we just got the numbers in from university of toronto we have about 46 to 6400 estimate uh new cases which is a lot of people sick and um the carryover from the couple of weeks before when we were close to 10,000 and school's just opening, and uh, most people don't know that. So it's uh, troubling numbers and uh, something that the public should know. But, uh, you know, I, I know uh, Janice Fitzgerald and a few others uh, give sound bites in a scattered interview here and there, but this is something that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, it, COVID doesn't take a break, so the information flow shouldn't either, right? So. 
So who should be responsible for that? Are you calling for what people got, became numb to? You know, at the beginning when there was a daily briefing, I think a lot of the province would have tuned in to hear what the updated numbers were. Then it became overwhelming, and then people became numb to it. So how do you, what do you think would be an effective approach to this type of information being shared? Because I think the consensus amongst the general public is they know it's still there. Uh, maybe some lack of understanding about how severe it might be and repeated infections and the concept of long COVID and all the unfortunate conversations we've had about vaccines and what have you. So what's an effective way to craft these messages? Because I think people are absolutely numb to it. See, um, you don't need a, a daily kind of no, uh, you don't. press conference, right? That's that's overkill. However, the, like the websites that we have the data on are pretty uh, limited. Like it's a one-page kind of thing with, you know, a few graphs and stuff that you, the, the average person isn't going to go and decipher what the information means on that, right? And that only comes out once a month, which is completely inadequate. Um, you know, so if you're dealing with a, an area with, uh, you, you know, like say the ferries, right? If they only gave weather updates every two weeks, that would be problematic to, you know, the running of the ferries going across to, uh, you know, Port of Basque and whatever. So it's it's the the lack of easy i guess easy to decipher information and the uh you know the what is the reasoning for giving data once a month you know if it's put onto a website and i'm sorry but this claim of you know lack of resources or whatever uh to be able to share that data is just not sufficient right so um you know if people are getting a once a month update on a website that's hard to decipher and very limited in its detail then that's not enough i mean we need uh you know back when it, when aids hit in the 80s and 90s uh they literally sent pamphlets of information out to every house in the United States of America so that people would know, right? Um, what kind of, where's that kind of information about COVID, right? It's kind of like, you know, people are going on what uh, they're told about the acute phase of COVID-19, which is, you know, just the tip of the iceberg, like, you know, so, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe a once a week segment on one of our news channels, something that's going to reach, uh, you know, this population that isn't tech savvy. So we have uh, you know, literally tens of thousands of people in this province who don't access a computer regularly. Right. So high elderly population that they get their information from NTV, CBC, uh, whatever. So as far as they know, a lot of them, you know, I got my vaccine, uh, you know, a year ago, like so, some people, it's like, you know, uh, 10 months ago, and they think they're still protected from this virus when they definitely are not, right? So we switched to a vaccine-only strategy, and at this point, there's so much confusion and doubt about the vaccines. Like, uh, they were just approved in the United States. Now they're getting approved here. Well, schools just opened last week, right? So we can expect a rise in cases. So we're, we're in a vaccine-only strategy with limited uh, access to vaccines, limited information about the new vaccines, uh, limited information about the virus itself, right? So it's just a, it's too much of a piecework kind of scattered. Uh, you, we'll give you a little information here and there. And usually it's to the tone of minimizing, right? Where it's, well, we have this under control, whatever. Uh, you know, if, if hospitals are jammed in the summer, which they were all summer this year, if COVID is rising that sharply in the summer, then we should have you know, walked into this fall and winter with increased information and increased awareness, right? Instead of, you know, uh, one interview here and there. So it needs to be uh, consistent. It needs to be um, methodical in the information, right? So if you have a website on COVID information, it should be stacked. 
with every bit of you know credible science that you can find on that topic. You shouldn't just be a one-page, updated once a month, uh, you know, scattered story in the news here and there. Especially here in Newfoundland, where most people depend on, you know, the the the, the news that they watch in the evening for their information. It's not, uh, you know, this isn't a totally web-based province where everybody's running to the computer to check the news. I mean, NTV, uh, you guys, CBC, all still hold, you know, uh, a good good portion of the attention of the people in Newfoundland and Labrador. So uh, utilizing these media outlets and providing adequate information on a regular basis. And, and again, going back to this whole notion that people have that COVID-19 is mild, that misconception needs to be stopped in its tracks because it's going to cause a lot of people a lot of issues. There's so much data. There's too much information out there for people to be walking around thinking, hey, I'm fine because I had COVID and it was gone in two days. That is just not the case. Our excess deaths in Newfoundland are staggering. So, uh, you know, if if people knew how many people were dying as a, you know, a a delayed result of COVID-19, it might wake them up a little more to go, okay, I don't want to take this risk at this time. And the the biggest thing is the lack of uh, protections in healthcare and in essential areas. So BC was the most severe province in the country uh, two weeks ago, and now they're having to re-implement masking and healthcare because they're just they're getting swarmed with COVID. People are getting the huge outbreaks in healthcare and long-term uh, care homes. So why are we just sitting on our hands waiting for it to happen here? We could act proactively, but again, it's silence and just sweep it under the rug. So, Last time we heard from Dr. Fitzgerald, hospital admissions were stable. Uh, people, for some reason, reject wastewater testing, which is a really solid indicator, always has been. We don't test yeah. anymore, so we have no idea. You test if you're admitted to the, the hospital or home care setting, but we really don't have a firm idea what's out there. And I guess the numbers that you're referring to come from Tara Moriarty. Is that... Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. And she is, you know, she's grounded in, in fact. She's not a, an opinionated scientist. <laughs> I appreciate the time, Keith. Thanks for this. Take care, Patty. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know how to talk about it anymore. To be brutally honest, I have no idea. Because for some thirsty free info, the problem is every time it's even broached, then it's all of a sudden, you know, you're fanning the flames of fear or fear-mongering or what have you, which I always find to be a curious reaction because it's simply information. You do with it as you will. So if someone brings you the numbers like Keith just did, I don't know why that would make anyone afraid versus mindful and aware, and you conduct yourself accordingly. That's basically how information works. But I guess that's where we are, right? Is that every time there's even a, a COVID mention, then some people's minds go straight to lockdown. Well, that just doesn't have to be, you know? There doesn't have to be a straight line from here's a number, oh, we're all locked down. No, you know, and there doesn't have to be a straight line between talking about sexual education and everyone who talks about it is a groomer, right? I mean, we've just kind of lost the path for reasonable understanding of info and how we can have a conversation about said information and or public policy and or societal concern because for a lot of people it's a straight line right anyway uh let's finish our conversation with lloyd tavener on line number one before we take a break lloyd you're back on the air (laughs) sorry about all that pat no problem we lost you and i'm not sure where we left off but i'll give you the final thoughts before we move on lloyd okay the uh 
Yeah, my phone went dead is what the problem was. Oh, okay. Yeah. So what we were discussing is Lloyd Tavener is the grandson or great-grandson of Benjamin Tavener? Uh, grandson. Grandson. And, of course, Benjamin Tavener was the commander on the Caribou when it was sunk in uh, October of 1942. Not sure where we finish. You also uh, regale us with the fact that he was also the commander of the Kyle when they found the aircraft all glory. So it's all pretty interesting stuff. Yeah. Well, like you say, at that time, uh, I think he was doing the, the, the coastal run, the Labrador coastal run. Okay. On the coil when the, at that time, and that was when they after I think this uh, and that's when they found the uh, the the old glory on that when he was on the uh, coastal run of the Labrador. And uh, anyway, that was uh, and apparently according to uh, my brother was telling me uh, apparently he was a good friends with uh, oh. Uh, Wilford, uh, Sir Wilford Grenville, apparently. Him and they were apparently good friends. Makes sense. On, on the run, too, because I think, they, I guess he used to do the runs on the coast, on the coast at that time. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, anyway, with the, uh, the, the, the uh, finding of the Old Glory, apparently the, they told me there was, uh, there I was reading that it was a, a $25,000 reward offered from some gentleman in the States, but apparently the reward was never ever seen. <laughs> and uh, that was just one thing. Now, the other thing, uh, the escort boat for the caribou that time, at that time was the HMSC Grandville, Grandmare. Grandmare, yeah. That was, right? Now, I don't know, I, I got sort of got a bit mixed up in the uh, U-boat because I was reading in the paper there and they were saying something about the U-boat 69 and then something about the laughing cow. Now, I don't know if they were calling the, the U-boat the laughing cow or if that was some trail that the the route was taken by ships, say, sailing from North Sydney to Porto Bass or what. So I sort of got a little bit confused on that one. I'm not sure about that reference of a laughing cow, but the German U-boat was U-69, yeah. Yes. Patrolled right. the Gulf St. Lawrence for quite a long time and took out a variety of vessels. Uh, actually, uh, she took, I think, in a matter of five months, she took out uh, 19 ships, plus the caribou made her 20th. Yeah, it was notorious. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they had a, a grand time on that in that five months apparently so anyway I don't know if there was anything else that you wanted me like I say I just jot down some stuff here and just wanted to touch bases with you on on the uh, on some of the stuff right I thought it was a very interesting conversation both with Ted last week and with yourself today and the family relation with both the Kyle and the Caribou is again to use the same word is fascinating I appreciate making time for the show Lloyd not a problem, sir. Nice talking to you. My pleasure. Take okay. care. Okay. Have a good day. Thank you. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, Bonnie's got an update. We spoke with Bonnie and maybe last week having a hard time, her and her son having a hard time getting transcripts from CNA, if I remember correctly, and then we're going to be speaking with you. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Where am I going there, David? David's talking to someone, so I'll just pick up my own mind. All right, line number two. Bonnie, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Very well. How are you doing? 
not too bad. It's just an update. I was talking to you yesterday morning. Myself and my son were having some trouble getting some required documentation from uh, DNA. Yep. So um, I hung up the phone call from you yesterday morning. Within 20 minutes of hanging up, he had an email uh, from the director. And within an hour, hour and a half, he had a letter in his hand. And he starts work at 8.30 tomorrow morning. <laughs> Terrific. Uh, so, so I don't know if it was the email or somebody listening in Radio Land, but either way, it worked and, uh, you know, mission accomplished. Well, that's the good news. Whether or not it was coincidence, neither here nor there for me. I'm glad it worked out because it was a bit of a headache, as you described. It was very much a headache, very much, and now it's a relief. So both of us actually just wanted to thank you very much. Uh, my pleasure. Wish them good luck for me. Thank you. Will do. Well, thanks, Bonnie. All right, bye-bye. Take care, bye-bye. All right, let's keep going. Talk about the RNC expansion with the independent member of the House for Mount Pearl Southlands. That's Paul Lane. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Okay, how you doing? I'm doing okay as well. Um, Patty, uh, I just wanted to talk, uh, I guess, about uh, resourcing uh, in the RNC. Um, and um, so, you know, uh, I don't have an issue with expansion. Um you know, uh, um, the RNC are, in my opinion, are uh, a very professional force, and they're very capable of uh, of, uh, of doing policing in any part of this province, as far as I'm concerned. Um, I mean, I, I do know that uh, there have been, you know, some concerning stories, no doubt, over the last couple of years. But you know, I would really chalk it up to as uh, some bad apples in a barrel, and that happens in every organization, and. I think that, uh, generally speaking, that if you were to speak to, uh, uh, you know, RNC officers, I know many of them have many friends in the RNC, and uh, they would tell you they were discussing some of the stories and, quite frankly, very angry with the fact that uh, that uh, some of the things that may have happened could reflect negatively on them, on their career, and, and their colleagues, and, and the force, which they serve with uh, pride and, and dignity and professionalism. So... Um, you know, I have no issues with them in terms of, uh, you know, expanding. But the concern I have is around, I guess, resourcing, and not just for the expansion, but I guess for policing in general. Um, and, and, and that includes, of course, in the area in which I represent and certainly throughout the metro area. Um, I continue to get um, calls on, and messages on a regular basis, for example, from uh, um, people in the Southlands area uh, about issues around uh, speeding vehicles and so on uh, throughout various areas in Southlands, uh, whether it be on Southlands Boulevard or whether it be going up toward people going up to the golf course or whatever the case might be. And no doubt some of them are people who are actually living in the neighborhood. But speeding is something that gets raised on a regular, regular basis. On top of that, in the other part of my district, in the Pearl section, certainly I know over the last year or so in the uh, areas around uh, Munden Drive, Jackman Drive, that area in particular, and all throughout uh, Mount Pearl, we continue to have issues around uh, um, uh, I'll call it petty crime in the sense of vehicles being broken into, sheds being broken into, that type of thing. Uh, I actually had someone on my street um, uh, in Powers Pond just a couple of days ago 
who was breaking into vehicles here. I know that they may not be the biggest crimes uh, in the world, uh, so to speak. I understand the police have other priorities. At the end of the day, I think when we look at the resources, it's not just to look at it from the point of view of do we have enough officers that when somebody calls the police, whether it be 911 or the or the general line looking for service, do we have enough officers to respond to these situations in a timely uh, manner? That's one thing. But the other piece is do we also have enough resources in place that beyond just simply responding to incidents when they're happening, do we have enough resources to be more proactive in patrolling neighborhoods and so on, uh, you know, particularly in, in, you know, in the night times and so on, to have police officers going through the neighborhoods, patrolling them. They see people out and about at 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning in a residential area, being able to stop them, find out who they are, what they're doing, why they're in somebody's driveway and so on, to be able to prevent some of the petty crime, then that has to be part of the um, matrix, if you will, in terms of uh, figuring out if we have enough resources to do the job. So uh, I do know that I saw a story recently, and we all did, of course, with former Chief uh, Boland, and part of what he was talking about, I'm not going to get into the issues that he had with the association or the government per se, but one of the things that he did say that concerned me was that he was having great difficulty in filling positions. I don't know if those positions have since been filled or not, but, you know, again, it's a resourcing issue. And, again, prevention has to be part of the puzzle here. It cannot simply be having someone to respond when someone's in crisis. We also need patrols for safety in neighborhoods and so on, and that seems to be certainly lacking uh, a lot of times in my area. And, uh, you know, I, I do try to utilize our Mount Pearl community police as best I can to at least make them aware of some of this stuff, but they're not police officers. They're there to enforce municipal bylaws and so on. They're not there to stop people from, you know, breaking into cars and, and, and so on. No doubt if you're around and you have a presence into the car with light on top of it, it may be helpful, but it's the RNC's job to do these things. And my concern is, do we have enough resources to make sure that's happening in all neighbourhoods throughout our uh, the metro area, for sure? The members of the rank and file will uh, answer that one very quickly and clearly and say, no, we don't have the resources. They're stretched thin. Which is why, yeah. I guess, you hear stories about picking and choosing what to investigate, what they can and cannot do. Because if they look at caseload and, you know, the priority and we look at the uh, crime severity index and the like, then that's the end result. If you don't have the resources to take care of every call you may call something you know quality of life crime or a petty crime or what have you but it all adds up to the feeling of safety and peaceful nature of your neighborhood because it doesn't take much for people all of a sudden think wow i thought i lived in a pretty sleepy quiet safe neighborhood now what the hell is going on so it all is part and parcel of the psyche of the impacts of crime uh paul i appreciate the time they're flagging me off to the break ladies usual not a problem, Patty. Thank you for the opportunity. And uh, like I say, if they're going to be, before they look at expanding, I think we need to make sure that we're resourcing what we have. And that has to be part of the equation, not just simply enough officers to respond to emergencies. Appreciate the time. Thank Thanks, you. Paul.
Okay, bye. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Paul Lane, independent member of Mount Pearl Southlands. Let's take a break. When we come back, plenty of show left for you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number four. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning. I want to start by throwing out a bouquet to uh, Bernard Davis, no relation. Uh, he had his his community event on Saturday, and in, <clears throat> instead of using the, the normal water bottles, Pepsi cans, and, and juice boxes, he went with reusable cups and water cooler and significantly reduced the amount of waste, and it seemed to work really good. So, you know, I know it was a little bit more work for him and his volunteers, but kudos to them. Yeah, so I, I know we had the event over at East Point. Uh, my wife went over because, of course, she used to teach there. Yeah, well, it's a great school, and I know he had – it's a great community too, so they had really good participation. But we were over there with Bouncy Castles and stuff, but it was just good to see that effort made by them to – as a minister of environment, amongst other things, it's good to be taking a leadership role. I want to give him, give him a shout out. Fair enough. I want to address something that kind of slipped through. Uh, Councilor Ellsworth uh, was on talking about how uh, the city is going to accelerate their heavy equipment replacement because they found last winter that a lot of the equipment was uh, in for maintenance. So they're going to buy new equipment, speed up the process, and they hope that's going to reduce the uh, maintenance costs. And I, you know, one thing I think is lost in the conversation is is why, and 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 I, I didn't hear any discussion about it. So I, you know, I just want to, I want to float this question, you know, out loud: is 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 a or is it because of the road conditions? You know, is that beating up the equipment? <clears throat> is it because of lack of preventative maintenance? Is it new staff that maybe need more training? You know, to just assume that because stuff broke up, uh, we just need to go buy new stuff. You know, and, and magically pay for it from surpluses from previous councils um, managing our affairs well. You know, it seems like every time we have a problem, um, that's where we get the money from, from responsible councils from the past who managed to run surpluses. And but if we are where we are and equipment needs to be replaced, what are the options? I'm sorry. What's the issue? <clears throat> well, nobody has said that it has to be replaced. What they've said is last year there was a lot of equipment that was in for maintenance. And as a result, they think by buying new equipment, they're going to avoid having to maintain that same equipment again. I mean, the assumption should be made that the equipment is now repaired um, for this winter because they're not obviously going to be able to buy the equipment right away. They just can't go out and buy a fleet of, of loaders and, and pl- plows and all that stuff. It's not just going to happen immediately. So the assumption is it's ready now. You know, I, I just want to, add, I want to know why our representatives who are not there to represent, I guess, the companies are going to buy plows from or from the people who should be either a being more careful or maybe the road conditions or whatever the reason is i did not hear that conversation at all as to why the equipment was so beat up last year compared to you know years before i mean they're they're accelerating the capital the, the purchasing of new equipment faster than they normally would in the past and i, and I don't think the, the the easy answer is let's go buy new equipment. But as a business owner, if all my stuff is beat up one year and it's not usually beat up in years past, then I have to ask myself, you know, why? And I didn't hear that being floated at all. I didn't hear the discussion in the council chambers, and it was not – nobody challenged the, our council as to why they need to go buy new equipment. And, I, and I'm doing that now publicly. It's, it's please justify to us, the taxpayers, who ultimately have to pay for this new equipment, why last year was an aberration, why last year our equipment was beat up versus years past. I mean, last year was not a particularly arduous uh, winter when it came to snow compared to previous years, i.e. snowmageddon year 2020. So 
I want to I want to float that. I don't have the answers, but I feel we as taxpayers deserve to know why last year we had this problem. And if and if it's a staffing issue or a, or a preventative maintenance issue or even a road condition issue, buying new equipment is not going to fix that problem. We'll be in the same problem again. Why was it said that last year was an anomaly or something that was bad last year versus the years prior? Because I didn't hear the conversation Correct. at all. Correct. That, that what was said was that last year a lot of our equipment was in was out of service because it needed to be maintained, and 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 that was the end. That was all. That was all that was said. However, what they're doing is they're buying equipment faster than they would normally buy equipment. So equipment that should have lasted say ten or eleven or twelve years, they're accelerating its replacement. And I, you know, I just want to ask the question why publicly. I don't know the answer, but I think our representatives, you know, should owe us the answer to that question. Fair enough. I can follow up and see if we can't get a rationale or why last year was different, if there's any understood root cause for excess damage. I have no idea. But that's something that we can absolutely get from the city because, you know, elaborating on why there's a spend required is pretty standard operations for politicians and elected officials at variety levels of government. So I'll see if I can get the info. We're up against the news. Anything else? Very quick time before we go. I just want to float some one thing that hasn't been said as well. The distance from Brookside Elementary to PWC is 13.7 kilometers, which is 14 to 20 minute bus ride. If instead of building a new school in Portugal, St. Phillips, we built a, a bigger high school in Paradise, it's only 10.1 kilometers, eight to 10 minute bus ride. So there's there's another option, which I, I guess maybe it's too late for this, but it, you know, we could just bus the people, the children in Portugal, St. Phillips to a bigger school in Paradise, which solves two problems at the same time. I just want to put that out there. Fair enough, Tom. Thanks. Appreciate your time. Take care. All right, it is indeed time for the break. When we come back, John Harris is next. Of course, he's the Director of External Affairs with the Memorial University Students Union. Don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back. Uh, Join us on line number five is the Director of External Affairs with Munsu. That's John Harris. Good morning, John. You're on the air. How's it going, Patty? Very well today. Thanks. How about you? Great, great. Glad to hear it. Uh, I'm just calling today to, to show uh, Munsu support for the climate strike. That's this Friday uh, at 1 p.m. at the clock tower. Uh, we're marching to Confederation Hill. Fair enough. So this used to be a fairly frequent occurrence. It was taking place at high schools and the like, and then it kind of went by the wayside for the most part. What reinvigorated it? I think that the the global uh, you know, conversation about climate change is coming to a head again. Uh, I think that you know, like many movements, had been kind of pushed to the side because of COVID and and uh, because of the you know dis- disorganization that happens uh, when that happens uh, during the pandemic. Uh, but I'm, I, people are very invigorated. Young people are you know very concerned about this province and the decisions that are being made in terms of impacting our future. Right? We have a, a provincial government in the same breath of cutting $68.4 million to uh, public education, giving $50 million to ExxonMobil uh, for oil exploration. Uh, I think that the, the, this government needs to have a serious plan about uh, the transition to, to green energy and without having private industry take the lead. I, I want to see some leadership from, from the public sector. Uh, and right now the conversation is in such a, uh, a poor place that we're, we're even talking talking about you know i was i was happy to hear the holy road 
diesel generator was was being shut down. But now we're talking about building a new diesel generator. So I, I really just I don't see a vision from this government. Uh, I think that the the, the problem of of trying to to continue on this pipe dream of of fossil fuels forever is is just not going to work out for for this uh, for this province. And the issue with Exxon and fifty million, it's a forgiveness as opposed to cash on the barrel head. But I get the point. The issue of uh, replacing Holyrood with diesel fire genera- uh, generation, I don't think is a fait accompli. To be honest with you, I'll be shocked if that's a decision that they end up with, given all the alternatives that are readily available. I know that we don't have a natural gas supply here, which doesn't mean we can't use it. I know that we may be able to utilize some of the hydrogen that's produced for backup purposes, but there's some curious things going on with the hydrogen conversation as well, like creating some in Labrador and shipping it via pipeline to different parts of the province, including St. John's. That all sounds completely out to lunch to me, but I don't think hydro is anywhere near making a decision about diesel fire generation to replace Holywood, even though that's I, got I, to go. I hope not. I, I think it just kind of speaks to where we're at in the conversation is that we're still discussing these types of things and that we're not we're seeing a, with the hydrogen. It really seems to me that uh, all of this leadership is coming from private industry and guys like John Risley. And uh, that's where this government's ear is at uh, the you know, all of a sudden for years and years, it was it was impossible to, to develop wind energy. And uh, out of nowhere, there was announcement that wind energy was, uh, you know, now illegal. And now, then, you know, a few months later, we hear John Risley talking about creating ammonium. So I, I, I think that we, we need to be having leadership coming from the public sector when it comes to uh, green energy and not just falling at the whims of where the money is coming from with private industry. Uh, I think that we need to have a solid plan on where we're going and how we're going to get rid of uh, you know fossil fuels out of the economy and right now what we're hearing is that we're going to keep going with fossil fuels and we want to keep exploring and we want to get new developments and young people are scared i think that this is a uh, a conversation that is going to affect many of the next generation and i think that the young people are need to be considered a lot more when it comes to this government that they're cutting education and then also you know have no plan to to get rid of fossil fuels so it's a it's a hard uh, sell for for a lot of this new generation and and for the students that are that are going to be uh, joining us on on friday uh one more time john give us the where the winds and the details surrounding the uh, march on friday it's going to be at the Munn Clock Tower, uh, and it's at 1 p.m. Uh, this Friday, September 15th, and we'll be marching to Confederation Hill. I appreciate the time. Thanks, John. Thank you so much, Patty. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. It's John Harris, Director of External Affairs at Munsu. And very quickly, look, I can predict with great certainty exactly some of the reactions that we'll get to uh, John's call here this morning. You know, I've got people continually telling me it's a hoax and all of this and that. But you know who doesn't think it's a hoax? You know who has testified under oath in front of the American Senate Committee on Energy about uh, fossil fuel emissions and what they mean? The oil companies. So we can, and again, just like we were talking about earlier about people drawing straight lines, talking about climate change doesn't only have to consider a carbon tax. Because that's how the conversation goes. Anyone with any attention to it, all your people, some people hear it as, well, let's just tax people to change the weather. Well, that's not what anything actually means or what a carbon tax is intended to do. But the oil companies themselves have admitted the quad parts out loud. 
So that's all we need to know. You know who else is uh, not denying it and the severity of it and the increase in the frequency and severity of these re- weather-related events? Insurance companies. I talked about earlier off the top of the program this morning, the Disaster Financial Assistance Arrangement Program. Been in position since 1970. $8 billion out the door to cover damage that were not covered by private insurance. 73% of that money paid out in the last decade. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Bill. You're on the air. Hi, Bill. Hello. Hello there. Yeah, I was just talking about the, the guy that uh, called in earlier, and he was talking about the COVID and how people are just struggling it off. Some people are, absolutely. Yeah. But that's what like, people like me, I, I never used to believe in it myself either, and I was one, I, I was supposed to get in the vaccine and didn't want it. But I was like, oh, I just, uh, this is something flu, you get over it, right? But uh, when you actually get COVID, it, it, you realize, you understand how people are actually really dying from it because it's, it's not going, it's a real sickness. It certainly does have severe impact on some, and of course, when you add in the so-called comorbidities, which make it much more dangerous for some people in the community, then yeah, the conversation is real. I had it. I got it last summer from travel. Well, I assume I did. I came home from a vacation and had that very next day, I tested positive. And for me, it was two days of pretty pretty rotten two days in bed but after that okay but i have friends that have had it much more severe i have a buddy i was telling my uh, producer dave about earlier uh is that a friend of mine who still lives in alberta originally from here his wife has had it a couple of times the last time she got it was about eight months or so ago she's still really unwell so there's it's out there people can navigate the their day-to-day uh happenings as they see fit but we can't pretend it's gone just because we want it to be gone well, I, I was I was two weeks with it, two two full weeks with nausea and and, and just like pure sick, like it was just fever and everything. I I, I, I was I was a non-believer of it. And I was like, okay, yeah, I, I could totally understand if people were dying from it. And uh, uh, I'm actually afraid to get it again now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, like anything else in this world, if you get it and it really knocks you off your feet, you'll be wary of ever getting it again. Natural. Yeah, um, so people got to understand that it is a real thing, and we shouldn't just we shouldn't just shrug it off and and uh, still take precautions that we we should be taking, right? Yeah, I mean, you, you see it in the community at large. A lot of the things that people were once doing when we were still in the unknowns and people didn't really know what to make of it and some of the public health policies that were put forward, things have changed dramatically. They just absolutely have. Uh, you know, whether it be going to concerts or baseball games or the like, people have gone back to the so-called normal life they had prior, even though I don't think it'll ever be the same, necessarily speaking, because a lot of things have been broken in the last few years. But I guess folks will you know, determine at what level of risk they are. And we do know there's some form of immunity if you've had it. There's some form of immunity if you've had the vaccine. But there hasn't been a silver bullet here. There hasn't been a one go-to all-encompassing level of protection. It was all these public health policies in combination had some uh, important impact to try to help people navigate the the tricky times that were the early onset of the pandemic. But yeah, I don't even really know what to say. What I do know is that the social scientists and I guess public health officials now pretty much to a man to a woman know that any real level of restriction will not be accepted. Regardless of how people, uh, how severe people think it may be, based on their own personal experience or stories that they hear, so I don't think you're going to see a whole lot of changes on public health un- unless things get completely out of control. And as far as this province goes, when we were all told it was about protecting the healthcare system, and it looks like hospitalizations are pretty stable, we haven't seen a spike there. Then I guess until something changes there, then nothing's going to change with public policy. 
Yeah, you're right. Uh, I think that the the biggest thing most people learn about is to wash your hands, right? <laughs> Well, I mean, just just recall, like I'm in my mid-50s. Growing up, washing your hands was just one of those go-to things that we were talking about to try to uh, prevent yourself from getting the common cold. The washing of our hands is the least we can ask of anybody. Yeah. Bill, when did you get the COVID? How long did it last? Uh, you were saying you were quite ill? I was, I was there last year I had it, and uh, it was two full weeks. Uh, my, my youngster got it, and then... Uh, she tested positive and I tested positive for it. And then, uh, yeah, oh my God, yeah, it was, yeah, it was two weeks and I couldn't, couldn't leave the bed. Well, fingers crossed that you don't have that experience again. And I appreciate making time for the show, Bill. I hope you're well. Yeah, thanks. Okay, buddy. Take care. Yeah, for some people, it hit them hard. That's just the way it goes, right? It's absolutely the truth. I would imagine just about everyone I know has had it at least once I've only had it once as far as I know and I do know some stories where you know people did say well it wasn't that bad Uh, but others are saying the exact opposite it was terrible so again if I could figure out exactly how to talk about it without having to put up with the the backlash of fear mongering and stuff because it's just not the case if someone's sharing numbers based on data and not suggesting that everyone uh, go clamor to the basement close your eyes put a good blanket over your head and hope for the best because that's not necessarily where the conversation has to go you know we're made aware of all sorts of things over the course of even my tenure in this chair that the reaction of the general public wasn't quite as severe. Now, maybe there was more severe public health policies. I think that's also undeniable. There was a lot of great unknowns, and it's been a frustrating stretch since March of 2020. I know I think we can all agree on that, regardless of your stance on any public policy, any restriction, any requirement, or the like. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the cost of living. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's let me press send on that one. Okay, let's go. Line number one. Good morning, Wayne. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Are you there? I'm right here. Okay. I'm calling to let you know that I picked up a sum of money up in Dannyville, outside the Home Sense store up there. Okay. I picked it up on the parking lot. So if anybody uh, wants to put in a claim on it, uh, can I give you my number? You sure can. Oh, Mm 709-364-1263. Good on you for being the honest person to want to return the cash because, unfortunately, some folks would be more than happy to put that in their arse pocket and move uh, on. Yeah. Well, I figured it was somebody's money. They may need it. Who knows? You know full well they do. So, Wayne, I'm not going to ask you the amount because, of course, that's how you're going to identify the rightful that's owner. But was it like right. in an envelope or in a wallet? No, or it, it was blown on the parking lot. Really? Just blown around? Yeah. yeah. And who knows if you were able to recover all of it if the wind well, I, carried I, a couple I, of bills. Thing I, I picked up as much as I could see. Yep. Yep. Well, if you have uh, lost any money and you were out in Galway around the Home Sense store, then Wayne's got it. And hopefully you'll, you'll hear this and you'll give him a call at 709-364. I think I wrote down 1263. That's correct, Patty. Okay, Wayne, good on you. Let me know if the uh, rightful owner gets in touch. Thanks, bud. You're welcome, sir. Thank you. Take care. All right, bye-bye. There you go. Good on, Wayne. Uh, let's go to line number two. Mark, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you okay. Thank you. Th- thanks for uh, taking my call. I appreciate it. No problem. I, I just heard the gentleman who uh, was, was uh, holed up with a pretty nasty COVID infection. I certainly felt for him. I certainly had that experience with my last um, 
my last infection. Uh, I've had it twice that I know of. First time, ironically, was really mild uh, in the sort of early onset period. Um, but I did get some long-term complications after that. And then the second time around, kind of got to a better baseline with energy and, you know, more or less back to normal, still taking precautions like um, like wearing, you know, well-fitted respirator and in indoor spaces, that sort of thing. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was hit pretty hard. And so it just, it just goes to show it's still a sneaky bugger of a virus. I just wanted to comment on what the gentleman said about washing hands <laughs> and it's of course i agree with washing hands i think like you were saying patty it's kind of like a very bare minimum uh protection in general and it's good hand hygiene is undoubtedly something that that helps in general with good health outcomes um what strikes me is that in the past there were people who actually fought hand hygiene in uh, in hospital settings. So doctors would uh, sort of downplay it when it was scientifically proven to help in healthcare settings. I think the specific um, study was around handling cadavers, so dead bodies. And uh, people were against that. <laughs> and it just feels like very familiar to the moment we're in now. I think what we've learned with um, not just COVID, but other respiratory viruses like flu, RSV, even the common cold, is that, I feel anyways, is that in healthcare settings, it just makes sense to have people who are going in who are sick. They're there because they're sick. They're not going to have a party or a good time. Um, is, is that healthcare providers and patients should be considering wearing masks at this point. And that is such a four-letter word, I realize. And when I say mask, I mean respirator, not not just sort of any old mask. But it's a, it's unfortunate that it's become so politicized because we've seen how that plays out in history, and it's taken it sort of slowed down the wheels of progress to get to a place where where settings like healthcare settings are more accessible to all people and and safer to all people. So it's sort of that that comment of uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes comes to mind. Yeah, anyway. I, I get it. You know, and in the healthcare setting, you could be a perfectly healthy visitor, but by and large, people who are in the hospital may indeed be unwell to begin with. And we all know that going into uh, contracting the virus unwell means you're at heightened risk. So the mask, like most of the conversations surrounding it, you know, people just try to dismiss one thing or another as a standalone and like if you have a well-fit and well-fitted respirator, you can indeed protect yourself from a variety of airborne illness, period. But, you know, certain kind of masks did not work, and some of them didn't work at all. Some of them had minimal impact. But the fact of the matter is, when you put it all together, whether it be more attention that should have been offered at the beginning of this about your own immune system and vitamins and exercise, because that should have played a role too, but it didn't. So masking and washing your hands and covering your coughs and sneezes and physical distancing and vaccination and nutrition and vitamins and fresh air and activity. Look, if everything in combination was helpful, but the unfortunate reality is yeah. we've picked it apart one by one to say, well, this doesn't doesn't work that doesn't work this doesn't work that doesn't work but the reality is i think the 
death toll of COVID-related uh, deaths in this province is around 386, if I remember correctly. And given what we know about the prevalence of chronic illness in this province, things in combination and people were adjusting their own behaviors did have a positive pragmatic impact to protect people's health. So where we go from here, I don't know. And I've said this many times from Santa Bye. The social scientists had this figured out. Academics, infectious disease specialists, chief medical officers of health, they had their own standalone thoughts. The social scientists said, let's look at what's happened in the past. Let's talk about what mandates yep. and restrictions will be. Let's talk about messaging surrounding uh, treatments or cures or protections. And they told us exactly what was going to happen, and they were right. They were right on the money. We should have paid more yep. attention listening to them. I often, I agree. I often feel for people in those professions who can sort of see the writing on the wall, but they just know, okay, it's going to take, you know, we're going to, we're going to do this merry-go-round again. So here we go. Um, yeah. So no, well, well, well said and uh, agreed with what you said earlier about like, I don't know. I don't know if it's wiring in us, but we tend to like gravitate towards that idea of a silver bullet, but it just doesn't exist. It, it, it's, it's sort of a, a dangling carrot but we you know layers of, of things is, is the way to go for sure like when we're driving our car and i know people hate the car analogy <laughs> it's probably so tired by now when we're driving our car we're not just protected by our seat belt we're protected protected by brakes we're protected by airbags but, but they're all various layers put together to hopefully make make the driving experience just a little bit safer yeah so no one thing and, yeah. and add to it speed and your awareness yep. and your uh, not being distracted i mean like everything else sir there's never going to be just one thing that is the full-on be all you can bet all your money on it that is going to be the ultimate and only protection required nothing really works like that so yep. that's where the conversation become tricky i would have no earthly idea i do this for a living i'm a so-called professional broadcaster and i wouldn't even know how to start recrafting a covid related message you know and even just add the vaccine nothing more frustrating than the vaccine conversation People didn't really have that type of consideration or comment or worry or paranoia about vaccines annually with the with seasonal influenza. I mean, when yeah. we're being honest, some of those uh, seasons have come and gone with like 40% effectiveness, period, because we're chasing yeah. our tail. We see what the flu looked like in Australia, and we identify the strains most likely to make the way here. Then we create a vaccine, and they've been ineffective sometimes. But we really didn't have that, you know, groundswell of, well, it's complete nonsense. I'm never getting it because it doesn't work, because we had an understanding of the risks associated with it you know so it's all gone very sideways i wish i could craft the message because i'm not in the business or in the mood for to be forever and a day all day long to be told fear flames fanning idiot you know what are you doing yeah. it's over it's yeah. not over but how do we craft the message we're just offering information versus emotion i, I yeah so so true i i feel and i've I can relate to the to that position sometimes of like just not being ready to accept. But I think so many people who are who are playing the fearmonger card are 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 stuck in a stage of grief, so to speak, um, and uh, and for whatever reason uh, are just are just sort of hanging out in there and, and and doubling down rather than sort of evolving to a new way forward. And and really, it's a way forward that nods back to how we've dealt with similar threats in the past, kind of thing. There are certain things unique to the COVID threat, but I mean, like you said, social scientists have kind of looked at these trends and uh, and I think the takeaway is that like, we're not individuals on an island, we're, we're community, whether whether we feel connected to others or not. Um, and we need, and we need something at the community level to, to be, to be some, some semblance of a, 
of a healthy population or a healthy province or whatever the case may be. Uh, I appreciate you making time, Mark. Thanks for the call this morning. Thank you, Patty. Good to talk to you. My pleasure. Take care. You too. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Yeah. How do we talk about it that can be absorbed and, you know, legit and mature and all the rest of it i don't know your guess is as good as mine all right let's take a break for the news when we come back best kind best kind what the best kind comedy tour don't go away get lost in the music of legendary artists like elton john the beatles and more join claudette barnes every sunday from 12 to 1 p.m and relive fond memories through the power of music with sunday melodies on your vocm Welcome back to the program. Well, the Best Kind Comedy Tour has been in action for quite a while now. One of the biggest independent comedy tours, four coast-to-coast tours under their belt. They've sold over 30,000 tickets. And, of course, the trio of mutants involved in this tour, Mike Lynch, Colin Hollett, and Brian Aylward. Individually hilarious, individually absurd. Joining them in the Best Best Kind Comedy Tour this evening coming up is Irish comedian Danny O'Brien. Now, one thing I can tell you as an Irish person, one thing that the Irish can do better than hold a grudge is to tell a joke. Join us on line number six is Danny O'Brien. Good morning, Danny. You're on the air. Hey, Paddy. How are you? Grand this morning. Happy to have you on the program. I think that's fairly accurate that the Irish are notorious for holding a grudge, but one thing we might be able to do better than that is tell a joke or a story. What do you think? (laughs) 100%. We're an island of storytellers, and I'll be honest with you, I've never felt more at home than in the last 24 hours here in Newfoundland. Well, we're happy to have you. And there is a big slice of Irish in this province. It's pretty much dominated by the English, but there's pockets of Irish heritage that, of course, we're all quite proud of. How did you end up being hooked up with the likes of the Mike and uh, Colin and Brian? I actually uh, met Brian about five years ago doing some shows in Asia, believe it or not. And then myself and Brian kept in touch. He came and did a couple of shows then in Dublin and uh, all over Europe and stuff like that as well. And I was doing the Edinburgh Fringe Festival this year for the whole month of August and then a couple of festivals back in Ireland. And Brian said, do you want to come over? And I ended up jumping on with the lads in Halifax on um, Saturday, which was amazing, incredible show. And uh, really, really excited to be performing with them this weekend at the Jack Byrne Regional Centre. Yeah, I know Brian has made Asia his home for quite a long time now. He's traveled the world extensively. His resume as a comic is pretty great. Westly, I mean, obviously your home base is in, in Ireland itself, uh, Ireland proper, Danny. But say you hooked up with him in Asia. So is that sort of a path your career has taken as well to that part of the world? Yeah, absolutely. I, I've kind of I've done a lot of tours in Australia and New Zealand, and you'd always try and stop off in Asia on the way. There's a huge expat community, and you know yourself. There's there's Newfoundlanders and Irish all over the world. Um, I find Newfoundland kind of like a, a miniature Ireland, um, and it's it's amazing. I, I've only been here 24 hours. I've already been up Signal Hill. I went to Cape Spear this morning. I got lost on the Galway roundabout. So now I can say I've done that in two different countries. <laughs> and you come from a place that actually uh, knows roundabouts and can understand how to navigate them. It's still in its infancy around here. So you mentioned you test drive your material in Asia before you make it maybe to some of the bigger tours or the bigger stages. Give us an, a, a sneak peek, because one thing we have created in this province is a lot of great artists, including a lot of top quality uh, comedians that have made, you know, made their mark on the international stage. What does it mean to come up with the new material because you want to be fresh you want someone who's a repeat visitor to one of your shows to think they're getting some of your new material what's the process look like for you 
you know what? It's all about relatability, Paddy, to be honest with you. And it's about connecting with audiences around the world with, with general topics that we all understand. I um, Colin Hollis very kindly arranged for me to go for dinner at his parents. So I was hanging out with Colin's parents um, yesterday evening. So a big shout out to Gerald and Marie Hollis, who looked after me. Uh, I had dinner with them and I had such crack with them. I could have been in my granny's house back in Ireland. It was it was brilliant. And it was great having a laugh and kind of exchanging stories and stuff with them. And uh, probably probably the best gallops of cod I've ever eaten in my life. I, I'm not going near a restaurant now on the rest of this trip. And you won't have to. So what can people expect when they make their way to the Jack Byrne Arena in Torbay? I was lucky enough to see um, the lad show the other night. It is an absolute powerhouse of a stand-up show from start to finish. I've never seen a show start stronger than with uh, Colin Hollett, and then it was Mike Lynch, and then Brian uh, closes it out. I'll actually be hosting the show in the Jack Byrne, um, so I'm looking forward to that and looking forward to getting as much Newfoundland material in as possible. Um, I've, I've, I've absolutely loved it here the last 24 hours. Everyone I met has been an absolute hoot as well. And uh, they've a lot of time for you as well, Paddy. Anytime I've mentioned your name, um, it's been all positive. So whatever you're doing, you're doing the right thing. Well, it's, it's a blessing and a curse to be held in highest team <laughs> by those three. <laughs> yeah, there are, I, I don't really know Mike, but I know his crack. Some of his TikTok stuff is absolutely, you know, break your stomach and uh, being nuts laughing at him. Give us some idea about some of maybe the Irish comics that maybe might not have, uh, you know, followed in their footsteps, but someone you look up to. Because one that I've seen in action who is absolutely outrageous is Tommy Tiernan, who's, if you've never seen Tommy Tiernan, never seen the video, it's worth your while. And I watched some of your routines as well, Danny, the over 30 drinkers and the like here in the recent past. So give us an idea of some of the comics out there that you admire. Yeah, Tommy Tiernan would be uh, one of my absolute uh, favourite comics of all time and I've been really lucky enough to work with him several times at different festivals all across Ireland. I actually brought my goddaughter, she's only 18, I brought her in to see Tommy's show at the Paddy Power Comedy Festival in July and uh, he met her and he was he was brilliant, he got pictures with her backstage and everything. Jason Byrne as well is an absolute tour de force and you know, I, I think Newfoundland is quite similar to Ireland, even though we've got a, a small population, we hit very, very heavy as comedians and I think it's because we kind of have to, it's the same with the rugby um, like Jason Byrne for example is the biggest selling comedian at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, now there's 7,000 shows a day at the Edinburgh Fringe and Jason Byrne sells more tickets than anyone else so we do we do really well for a small country and I think it's because we're a nation of storytellers, the weather's a bit crap like here in Newfoundland so we have to be funny and have the crack because we can't be outside all the time in the sunshine because it's not there it's something about being from an island as well, right? I think it just makes you want to be part of the storytelling and uh, be able to tell a joke and to be comfortable in social settings. How about Graham Norton? Graham Norton is incredible. I mean, he started off early doors in Father Ted and now he has one of the biggest production companies in the UK. His show is arguably the best late night TV show going and he's had you know guests from all over the world. He's absolutely incredible. I actually used to watch his early stand-up as well on DVDs, and he was hilarious. And you mentioned the rugby. What Did you manage to catch uh, Ireland-Romania there on the weekend? Put up, what, 82 points, 12 tries? Was I only know, yeah. I think we, we won by, like, nearly 80. I think that's a new record. I was in New Zealand in April, and I did a TV show over there called Seven Days, 
And uh, I'll tell you one thing, Paddy, the Kiwis don't like you pointing out that we're winning the rugby. Like, they've beaten us for years, but uh, yeah, it was a bit of a sore point. That joke didn't make the edit, I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, it all turned around for Irish rugby when the Irish beat the Kiwis in Chicago at Soldiers Field there a number ago. Since that, the New Zealand, of course, the All Blacks have been dominant for so long. But all of a sudden, the tune changed a little bit. And the Tri-Nations got replaced by the Six Nations as the second best tournament in the world. And you're right, Ireland won 82-8 to with 12 there was only 50 on the weekend Ireland scored 12 of them so they're in good stead and of course the Kiwis open up with a loss against the French to kick off the World Cup this go around uh, anything else you want to tell us about or regale us with something leave me with a smile or a smirk before I go to the break do you know what I am um, when I when I visited um, Colin Hollis' parents yesterday they're, they're <laughs> like in Ireland we can be a bit kind of harsh on each other and maybe it's just because Newfoundland to me just seems a little bit even friendlier than Ireland you know and it's funny because when I when I go over to my mother's or my granny's house they do a weird thing where they'll get I don't know if this happens here I'm kind of hoping it does where they'll give you an insult and a compliment at the same time so if I go over my granny will make me dinner and in the middle of eating it she'll tell me she'll go Danny you're after getting very fat in the face and I look in the mirror I get all paranoid I say what are you talking about and then she'll just leave the room and she'll say but it suits you <laughs> exactly right and that uh, that left handed right handed compliment insult that would work famously <laughs> for me yeah absolutely they never let you get above your station um, and I kind of like that as well you know what I mean we have good humility in Ireland and I always joke about the English as well because everyone said Ireland was under 800 years of British rule and oppression but I think it was 800 years of us playing the long game so uh, I think <laughs> Ireland's kind of on top of England now for the first time in history you know exactly where the country belongs and as they say you know there's a bunch of good Catholics and a few good Protestants too bad there's not more good Christians <laughs> it's good to have you on Danny where can folks get a ticket uh, they can jump on Brent Mac events or through any of the social media links from the best kind lads or myself I'll stick it up on my Instagram stories at the OB comedy and uh, for anyone who's in, in need of a laugh I think everyone needs a laugh in the in the place in the world that we are at the moment so I'd really recommend come along to this show on Saturday forget about all your troubles and just have a laugh for three hours straight uh, well it's getting gra- rave reviews around the country so I'm sure it'll be nothing different down in Torbay at the Jack Byrne Regional Arena great to meet you this morning Danny thanks for this you too Paddy you're a gent take care take care of yourself take care ok bye bye it's Irish comic or comedian Danny O'Brien great stuff final break of the morning don't go away back to the show oh wrong clicker let's go line number 4 chess you're on the air good morning Paddy how are you ok how you doing uh, that bad that bad I got a question I'm just wondering about the government I was just wondering, uh, when are they going to put a stop to the landlords and all this stuff, increasing rents? Because uh, people's, I think my people is on the street, nowhere to go. The rent has gone up. Like, for instance, my rent, they're taking $200 out of my food money to pay for my rent. Where's my rent? And what I got to live up? Next to nothing for food. Now, as people, I know a person got a call yesterday from her landlord. Saying her rent was it was seven hundred, now it's gone to nine fifty. Now nine fifty. Now that poor woman might have to end up going on the street. Where are you going? Right? I think the government the government should step in for all this stuff. You know what I mean? They're wasting a lot of money. There is some conversation about rent control happening in the province. Whether or not it actually ever comes to pass is, I guess, debatable. Rent control is one thing, but if it's going to work 
properly because, I mean, landlords aren't in it necessarily for the goodness of their heart. They're in it to make, no. them make money. So when interest rates go up and operational and input costs go up, yeah. they pass it along. It's just how the world works. But yeah. when we see rent control in combination with vacancy control, we know it can work for current renters, maybe not for future renters, and then add to it how that might complicate the world of developing and building affordable units because if you make it part and parcel with rent control to have you know, attention to affordable housing, Again, like landlords doing it for a line of business, same with developers. They're not building it just to satisfy the needs of the general public. They're building what they can make money on. Yeah, that's right. But, you know, there's going to be a lot of people on the streets after this. Nowhere to go. You got them out there now. Nowhere to go. And they can't afford to pay for their rent. Like me here now, I was paying a thousand bucks for sharing the rent between the two with me and my six son, right? And now it's gone up to 1300 that 200 is coming out of my food money. Coming out of my food money. Do you know what I got a month to live off them for food? $200. What can you buy out of $200 a month, buddy? Not a great loss. No. You know what I mean? And it's making it harder on people, too. Right? It makes no wonder they're going on the streets and nowhere to go if you can't afford to pay for the rent. And the government's not going to do nothing about it. Right? Well, I, I suppose it would be up to... You know, generally speaking, the the rent issue isn't the same everywhere in the province. There's a big crunch right here in the yep. Northeast Avalon. We know that yep. to be true. And, you know, for instance, would you need the province to do it? Because let's just say the city of St. John's imposes some form of rent control, vacancy control, whatever. Then what happens if Paradise, CBS, and Mount Pearl don't? So then we've created a bit of a, a an additional problem because if it's not a matter of follow the leader or we don't have some co- cooperation and or provincial leadership or guidance on this front, it's hard to picture it changing. Yeah, because, you know, if they're taking people, like, they're taking money out of my check to pay for my rent. Where's my rent? And that's money I'm losing out of my food money. Understood. And I'm a diabetic and everything else. So is my son sick and everything stuff, a diabetic and everything. And all that money's gone now. We won't get money for our diabetic money because we can't afford that. We got to buy junk food to live out. Right? You got to buy junk food to live out. How can you stick a person to live like that? I think the government is trying to kill half us here. Myself, that's, uh, you know, they're, they're just, just uh, trying this I, I don't think they're trying to kill you, but I understand your yeah. worries. Yeah, yeah, but sure, people, look at all them young people. I've gone into drugs I, and dying on the street, Penny. I pitied that poor young fella that died down on Water Street. I pitied him. I didn't know him, but I pitied him. Because he had no money to live on. And the government is making it worse. But they got money for everything else. They got money to take flights everywhere. They got money to put in divorces. A uh, million dollars a year for that crowd up there, but that's a million dollars he could put into housing, and he could give the people to live out. Just destroying Newfoundlanders, taxpayers' money. They're destroying it, right? That's what they're doing. I think this this premier we got here now is useless for a premier now. He don't even hope to help his own uh, his own uh, workers, doctors and nurses. He don't even want to do nothing about them. I don't know. A lot has changed in an effort to fill the shortages or the gaps in health care, but, yeah. you know, it's he been a... Seems like he's not doing nothing about it. Seems like he don't care about anybody. Uh, right? I don't know. Lines are getting their money coming into their back pocket, and knowing them politicians are in there, they don't want to do nothing for nobody. I often phone them. Guess what? You may turn your phone call once a month. Uh, every second month, they might phone you. Right? No, I tell you what they here you complain, and he goes on, don't bother phone you back at no more. That's what they're at. Half men are as useless being in there. 
Okay. Uh, well, one thing with getting back to people, look, that's one thing that has long frustrated me is when people have questions or concerns, if you can't help them or the proper answer or the correct answer or something they don't want to hear, sometimes that's better than silence, right? And I, that's a real communications flaw or a lack okay. of communication flaw. It seems to be a feature, not a bug. Uh, anything else before we run out of time this morning, no, Chess? That, 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 that's what I'm saying that the people, and like say, that's the ones around the street got nowhere to go to can't afford to pay the rent, and they're taking the money out of their food money. That's shocking, though. Ridiculous. What they're doing to poor people here. Right? I hope you're doing and, okay, Chess. You have a good day, buddy. You too, man. Take care. Yeah, bye, bye. All right, bye-bye. And you know, inside that world, not directly related, but absolutely related in some form or fashion, is you talk about some of the shortages out there, and it seems to me, for some reason, there's a shortage everywhere. There's a labor shortage, period. Healthcare professionals, skills, trades, teachers, it's just seemingly, seemingly never-ending. And some of those jobs which are, you have a, a bright and prosperous future, but we can't seem to get people to want to take on some of these roles. The one that confused me the most, even in the most uh, recent StatsCan economic update numbers from August, we lost something like 30,000 professionals from the education sector. It used to be you go to go to university, get a degree in education. You had her, I don't know, I'm going to say had her scald, but you had a job right there for you, job security, pretty good pay, pretty good benefits. Now, there's an argument to be made as to whether or not we pay one profession or another enough monies. But in that world of people being left out, un- unable to keep up, and rent, and cost of food, and general cost of living increase, some of the gaps in the healthcare world, for instance, that don't get the attention that others do, because it's easy, easy enough to focus in on the need for doctors, and family doctors, and nurses, and registered nurses, and LPNs, and nurse practitioners. We have the you know respiratory therapists, the technicians, the clinicians. The one group that kind of gets left out of the conversation, which I think kind of belies the issue, is social workers. Remember the story that was in the news last week, and I guess we should put it back on the front burner, is that just in the Department of Children, Seniors, and Social Development, there is 99 social work vacancies. 16 unfilled positions in Labrador, and I think it was 83, yeah, 16 and 83, 83 on the island. That means about 20% of that department's social workforce is vacant. And social work, you know, people have in their own mind's eye exactly where the social workers are, what they do. Some people think it's all about child, youth, and family services, when in fact, social workers involved in education, in different arenas in healthcare, including at the H. Bliss Murphy Cancer Center, working in workers' compensation, working with all kinds of, in the criminal justice system. So when we have that that number of uh, vacancies for social workers, workload becomes unmanageable. There was the thought that they were putting in some, let's say, 50 plus hours a week, navigating some 20 files. Now we think, given the 20% vacancy inside that one government department, it's more like trying to op- juggle 60 cases. Between the trauma and the pressure and the paperwork, it's absolutely physically impossible for them to do their best job and the best work that they want to be doing when they're having that particular caseload pressure. I mean, I know a couple of social workers and they talk about whether it be buried under paperwork or whatever the case may be, and then they see new, freshly graduated social workers put in, being put into some of the most difficult portfolios. Oftentimes in the world of the seniority, and I get to move on in different roles or different jobs inside one department or another or working for the government in any capacity, is I don't want to be in the most difficult job. 
Now, some of them might stick with it and see that their skill set is finely tuned and a good match for, maybe, say, for instance, the child protection for portfolio. But far too often, really new, fresh grads end up in that role with that workload, with that amount of paperwork. And, I mean, you have to document stuff. Paperwork, I'm not trying to say that we don't need any paperwork, but it becomes a complicating factor. All right, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, all the callers, listeners, emailers, tweeters. You're all right. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.